Hello, friends, and welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. My guest today is legendary climber Ron Kauk. Ron's name is associated with Yosemite and Camp 4. Yosemite Valley is where Ron did the majority of his climbing and where he pushed standards for more than two decades, from the 70s into the late 90s. And this episode is really a treasure trove. It was so much fun. If you enjoy climbing history and are interested in that whatsoever, I think you'll get an absolute kick out of this conversation. We talked about Ron's beginning in climbing, his first wilderness trip at age 14, and about his first summer in Yosemite Valley. We talked about climbing outer limits with Jim Bridwell, We talked about Dale Bard's converted bakery van and about life in Camp 4 in the 70s. We talked about the music of Jimi Hendrix and climbing Astro Man with John Backer and doing the first ascent of Midnight Lightning, which is probably the most famous boulder problem in the world. And we talked about working as a stunt double for Sylvester Stallone and Tom Cruise and some of the craziest things Ron did to make money in order to climb. If you are familiar with Ron, you'll also know that he's incredibly thoughtful and his philosophy on life is very interesting. We definitely dug into that as well. And we talked about how climbing has changed over the past few decades and about the importance of staying connected to mother nature and to the earth. And I was curious to hear if Ron had a vision for what climbing could be as it enters into the Olympics and continues to grow. And Ron had some really thoughtful answers and a great message to share with all of us. So I'm very excited to be sharing this episode. If you enjoyed my episodes with Alan Watts and Peter Croft, I think you will absolutely love this one. I actually reached out to Alan before this conversation, and I had a fun surprise for Ron towards the end of this interview, so you'll get to hear that as well. If you are interested in any of the books or films we talked about in this episode, we talked about quite a few, be sure to check out the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. I just started an Amazon Affiliates account, so if you do want to buy one of those books or purchase or rent one of the films we talked about through Amazon Prime, be sure to use the links I've provided there in the show notes. I realize that I've been going through all the trouble of making links anyway for things that come up on the show. And this way, if you purchase something, any of the books or products that come up on the podcast, I get a small kickback from that and it helps the show. So again, the show notes are at thenuggetclimbing.com. And be sure to follow me on Instagram as well, at The Nugget Climbing. I will be sharing some classic photos that I got from Ron over the next few days. There's a photo of him and Wolfgang Gulick with Sylvester Stallone. And just some gems that you don't want to miss. So, again, I will be sharing those at The Nugget Climbing on the gram, as the kids call it these days. Ron was recently awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award by the American Alpine Club. That was really the impetus for us to have this conversation, and it is truly an honor for me to have a chance to do this. This was a really special episode, and I can't wait to share it. So, without further ado, thank you all so much for tuning in. 
Please enjoy this conversation with legendary climber, Ron Kauk. I feel like I have to share the story of how we connected, actually, and then ultimately share my own embarrassing story here. So I got a text message from Katie Lambert a couple months ago out of the blue, and it just said, you know, Ron has just been awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award from the American Alpine Club. Uh, congratulations for that, by the way. Thank you. And then she just said, you know, he'd be interested in being on your podcast. Let me know if you'd like his contact. And of course, I was thrilled, got your email from her, and I reached out to you and invited you on the show, said, you know, I'd love to talk to you about this. Congratulations on the award. What do you think? When would you want to do it? All those sorts of things. And I just got this one-liner email back from you that said, uh, great talk with Alan and nothing else. <laughs> and of course, you were referring to Alan Watts, and I was thrilled to read that. And then I got a second email, I think a day later or a few hours later, and it just said, it would be very interesting to talk with you, maybe because no one can do it like you do. And I read that, and I was like, oh my God, that's so flattering. I can't believe it. I was just, my ego just swelled up. I felt elated. And then I came to realize shortly thereafter that you were just quoting from the theme song of the podcast <laughs> <laughs> that's what sold me though i mean come on man that's just that's total confidence you know? that means we mean business and that's just how it is and, and those voices of those singers it's just i was going around singing it to myself <laughs> it, was, it was so good but you know the key word is out of the blue uh. you know that's that's how it kind of works for me this life is just usually it's just out of the blue you know, the, the flow of the nature way, you never know what's going to happen. I don't like to plan anything exactly, hmm. but, uh, you know, it's true. The American Alpine Club Award kind of surprised me in a way and you know, it made me think a lot, you know, like, oh, lifetime achievement. Then you start thinking and reflecting on all the different things. And then it came time, well, they usually have a gala or whatever they call it, you know, a big gathering of people in a building. And of course, nowadays you can't do that, you know, so... They just wanted to do it through the internet or whatever. And so they said, can you just record yourself? Like just your acceptance speech, <laughs> you know? So I'm like, all right. And I'm thinking, how do you, how am I going to do that? Like hold my iPhone up and for like, I'm taking a selfie and, and <laughs> you know, give my acceptance speech. So I kind of attempted it and I was just failing. Like this just doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> then I finally did it with one of the ladies that works there, Heidi. And so, it, you know, it worked out, but it was two minutes, you know? And I, I just had thought that was such a, a honor to get an award like that, but it'd be nice to share more. And then, the, hmm. you know, these podcasts, uh, Katie mentioned podcasts and yourself. And and so it's just lined up, you know, even though it's been a while for us to come around. I think it's a great day now to visit and see what comes out of this, hmm. you know, life of climbing. Climbing is a way of life. And and at these stage, the stage I'm in now, there's so much reflection of the experiences and what, what maybe I know now from the experiences, which could be some knowledge of something. Hmm. <clears throat> but, but for me in this life now, it's all about where's the wisdom or, or the deeper connections that what have we learned and, and, and celebrate together as a climbing community, but also what is our contrib contribution to society, you know? So that's what's fun about being able to visit with you. 
But thank you for sharing that because that's really funny. <laughs> and that's the emails. Like I don't really take them too serious, but they make me laugh at making me think about my one liner. <laughs> and and uh, nobody does it like you do it. <laughs> it's all, all lowercase, <laughs> no yeah, punctuation. Of <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. Well, I I'm really excited about this. I mean, anyone who's followed you, I think will will know how much uh, reflection you you have done throughout your whole life as a climber and how many insights you have and i mean you've really explored some of the the deeper meaning in climbing and and you have this almost spirituality that you bring to climbing that i think is so interesting and i really want to dig into that in a little bit here but i actually thought we could start uh somewhere totally different i would love to just hear some fun stories and I want to dig into your movie career a little bit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, you've done a lot of uh, actual climbing films, films where um, someone either, you you know, you helped produce it or a producer featured you doing some real climbing, um, doing cutting edge climbing in Yosemite uh, decades ago, that sort of thing. But what I had either forgotten or just never fully appreciated was actually totally different from that. This is your Hollywood career. And I... To kick things off, I would love to hear about Sylvester Stallone and Cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah. And I, I love that you keep using the word career because it's so funny <laughs> to me, you know, because <laughs> I've never considered myself a professional anything or a career or any, in a joking way. And just for a side note, my professor friend, Ken J. Kuda, who we started our nonprofit together, Sega Rock, he would marvel at me he, and he would say, you know, you just couldn't have planned your life. <laughs> like you can't plan a life like what way it's been for me. Mm. But I took it as such a compliment because careers or, or you know, planning for retirement or whatever you do is, is one way to, to approach life. But another one is to kind of co-create with your imagination and, and perhaps you'll attract things that show up, right? Mm. So the main thing to kick this off about my career of Hollywood or whatever is that all I ever really wanted to do was climb. So how am I going to do that? That's why I have a lot of compassion and respect for the guys now. They just want to go climbing too, but they might have to do all kinds of things for sponsorship and so forth. But it is what it is. But so to be able to climb, we were on the rescue team or whatever happened to have a campsite. And and then these other opportunities started to pop up because climbing was taking more popularity. And of course, the, the, the movie stuff didn't take place till way later. I mean, Cliffhanger with Stallone was like 92, I believe, 1992. Yeah. And and I happened to be over in France living at Patrick Edlanger's place. For those of you who can remember him winning the World Cup at Snowbird, uh, whatever year that was, 86 or something. And he was a super famous climber over there. And, and it was just great. And I was in you know good shape and lean. And then there was a call about trying out for this movie with Sylvester Stallone. So I had my mom send all of this stuff to him you know, pictures or whatever. And then my mom must be something like his mom. He, his, his mom's known to be, uh, I don't know how to how you describe it, but a real mom's mom, you know, how moms can be with their sons and you're going to be the only of these, their little baby, you know. And uh, <laughs> Stallone's got something with his mom like that. But my mom sent a, a cover. I was on the cover of a climbing magazine or something. She goes, you know, something about property of Susan Calc, the mom, you know, like she put this mom stamp on it. <laughs> Pretty heavy. And I swear, I think that that had a lot to do with it that when he received this stuff, he's going, wow, this is cool. So here I am in France, climbing, living, and they fly me back to LA to try out 
to see if, if I would be, you know, good for the doubling or whatever. So imagine you're, you're in France, but you take off and you land in LA and you got a guy standing there in the airport, you know, Ron Calc, whatever. And yeah. And then do you go in the limousine? I go, do you mind if I sit up front <laughs> and get in the limo and, and drive with this guy, this black brother? And we're talking about stuff. And, and uh, I, we were having a good conversation about us. And I forget exactly what he was saying. He goes, but man, you know, maybe you're better where you were at. And the guy I talked about being in the mountains and this and that. <laughs> and they dropped me off at uh, some studio place. And I meet Rennie Harlan was the director and Stallone right at the time. And, and Stallone was so supportive because he, he really wanted authentic climbers, you know. But then the he's pretty stout guy. You know, Stallone, he's, you know, pretty wide and muscly and, and I wasn't looking that way necessarily, but if you're on the cliff, how are you going to tell really if you, you know, the muscly thing, but the, <laughs> the, the, uh, the director or whatever you want to call him or anyhow, he's going, well, I don't know. He's going to have to eat a lot of granola or something to puff, puff up, you know, to bulk up. <laughs> and, and so this started this really radical shift, you know, like sometimes life will come along and it just, the pages turn to the next, whatever it is. <clears throat> so the, the signing up for that movie was exactly that. So I began a life of living in off Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood in some hotel for like six weeks. And I, I went to start working out with Stallone's trainer, you know, and our job, my job at the time that I was signing up for was a couple thousand dollars a week to work out and eat. <laughs> and, and somehow they just wanted to get you to look more like Stallone and the size was ridiculous. So then they were, uh, the, the trainer was saying, well, out of the blue, he starts saying, well, I'm, I'll be the one giving you the injections. I'm like, huh? Like they were getting ready for the steroids. And, oh, and I'm, at St I'm at Stallone's house in a, his private training place. It's like, could be for the public, but it just happens to be his. And, and uh, I'm hearing that. And I'm like, oh, no. And I go, I, I said, yeah, whatever it takes, you know, because I was just bluffing, right? This is going into the poker game of it all. Like, there's no way I was going to do that. So, but I was going to see how far I could get. But I remember talking to that trainer. I'll never forget it because I go, yeah, you know, I, I I see what you're saying. No, whatever it takes. But, you know, I'm the kind of guy that can go sit up on that tree. I pointed to this tree on this little hill. I can sit there and I'm good with everything, you know. Mm. So I don't, you know, I was kind of trying to talk a little bit about that steroid thing without saying I wouldn't do it. I forget the conversation, but I just remember that moment. And then, thank God. Wolfgang Gulick was flown in because <laughs> he's a bigger guy than me, you know, and bustling. He's and he could do one arm pull ups and all this stuff, easy with one finger. And uh, so Wolfgang and I got together, and this is like, I mean, I've known Wolfgang over there in, in Germany from other times together in Frank and Euro, and and he was like a brother to me. Like we got along so good, and and he's got a great sense of humor, humble and. And, and, you know, just a great person. So when he showed up, I was so relieved, you know. And then uh, when it was proposed to him about the steroids, he's like, we cannot do this. We are sportsmen. Absolutely not. <laughs> so he was calling him out, right? Because he didn't have any clue about how corrupt all these guys are. You know? But somehow Stallone was uh, okay with it because he knew that with Wolfgang there and it would work out. And then we'd be working out in the gym with Stallone and, and the, the HBO guys would come in and he'd say, Wolfgang, come here, show him how you do that. And he'd put a one finger over the bar, do a one finger uh, pull up, you know. <laughs> and so there was all this kind of stuff going on. But somehow it saved the day for me. And Stallone wanted me there, you know. So we were there for six weeks living in L.A. It was, it was such a trip. 
And like I say, it was a very soulful time to bond with Wolfgang and, and kind of navigate the humor, but also slight nightmare of, of being there <laughs> from guys that like to be out climbing into nature. The next thing you know, we flew, took off to Italy. We were living in Cortina, you know, moving into these other nice hotels and <clears throat> the Dolomites area. And, and we, we'd started working and, and a typical day for Wolfgang and I would be to get in your costumes, get up five in the morning, get your breakfast and then go sit. We go into the makeup trailer, they do hair and all this kind of stuff. And we'd sit there most of the day until lunch and eat lunch. And then we'd sit there most of the day and then go home because they wouldn't need us that day. You know, oh, we go, go on for days like that. <laughs> Finally, we do something. <laughs> it was just such a, an amazing thing to think how these big movies get together with millions of dollars. God only knows, 80 million maybe. Hmm. And they make this big movie. And, and, and another thing that would happen is we'd get in these helicopters. We were always flying in helicopters. And we'd land on top of these mountain peaks, you know, and they'd have a whole set up there. And then be like clockwork by whatever time in the afternoon, the clouds would come in and it would start to threaten with lightning and ha uh, hail and everything. So it became like a mock rescue to get everybody off the mountain. <laughs> so it was, it was really crazy and fun and, and a great opportunity to earn some money and all that. And, you know, very memorable. And we had good times with Stallone too, where he said, okay, you guys are talking about all these moves you make. I want a list of the moves and we're going to put them in this movie. So we go, okay, sure. But neither one of us made the list. And we went to the gym, whatever day it was after he asked for that. And so he says, did, did you get the list? You know, he's looking at me and I, and I just turned to Wolfgang and I go, Wolfgang, did you, you know, kind of, <laughs> and I'll never forget. He had a bodyguard that was always around this guy, Gary Compton with him. And, you know, I put it to Wolfgang and Wolfgang goes, you know, no, we don't have it. And so there was this moment where we were, we weren't living up to our responsibilities with Stallone. And it was just kind of a funny moment. <laughs> You know, things like that would happen. And uh, yeah, you know, it's fun to go back into the memory, keep digging it up. But there was just so many moments of, you know, good feeling to go down to the coffee shop. And, and Wolfgang would always say, uh, should we get a, a cappuccino and, a, uh, you know, a, a pastry or something? Or oh, no, apple strudel. Should we go have an apple strudel and a, a cappuccino? <laughs> and, and that was like our relief to go to this little cafe and, you know, check out the, maybe the Italian help that was bringing the coffee to us, and, <laughs> and, you know, but I swear that was a, you know, a, an incredible opportunity to be with such a great person and earn some money and laugh together and endure sort of the craziness of flying around in helicopters, landing on peaks, the absurdity of it all, <laughs> and, uh, and then get through it somehow. <laughs> so that was a major league thing. You know, the thing about that is, there was a guy, the second unit director, Phil Pfeiffer. He had worked with Tom Cruise on Days of Thunder. And he mm. said, you'd be, a, you'd be a good double for Tom Cruise. I said, well, great. <laughs> Why don't you tell him? You know? And, and did I have any idea that sometime later I would be doubling for Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible 2? No. And that's what my professor friend said. He said, you could not have planned your life. But it all started out, you know, coming up here early on. And right away, because it's Yosemite, we were working with a, some kind of TV crew. This whole movie thing started out right away because there was always some job in Yosemite that had to do with that. Mm. As soon as we got here. I think my second summer here, we were working for some kind of movie crew. And we were on top of the roster. And Backer and I were, we were holding these paint can things and they were spraying the top of the roster to match some other rock. 
And we were thinking, is this right to do? We're only like 17 or something. <laughs> it turns out the movie crew was up there abusing the place. You know, they were saying, oh, yeah, it'll wash off this, oh, this wow. paint that they were putting. You know, so we were too young to kind of know, well, what are these guys doing? But there it was right there. How do we make money doing what we want to do? But how do we understand the effects we're having on something else? You know, mm. so there's been that story economic. How do you balance it? I would love to dig into that. I just have this simple quote from you, this one-liner. Uh, I remember you saying this on the phone the other day. You said, we would do anything to make $1,000. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's back in the day. And, and when I reflect, I'm thinking, how did I spend my first summer up here at 16 years old? I couldn't have had over a few hundred dollars. How? You know, I know we bought potatoes and peanut butter and honey. And so somehow we made it. So we were very frugal. But then as it went on, if these jobs came and they, they wouldn't pay us too much, uh, you know, well, although 50 bucks a day back then was a big deal. Mm. And uh, so I remember working right away for that that film crew. Then there was another TV thing that came in called Sierra. It's like a TV series they're trying to make in Yosemite with Rangers Rescue and Climbers. And I remember going up to all middles dressed up as a ranger <laughs> or something and uh, doing some stuff like that. But yeah. Then there was another friend, Mike Hoover, that showed up, and he he's the one we started working for all the time and rigging ropes to the great roof for this TV show called Callaway's Climb or something. We hung Rick Ridgeway off a, a rope up there like he had fallen or some crazy thing. But but that's when I was going with that quote. Like It seemed like we always made at least $1,000. <laughs> so that's what I thought. You know, back in the day, if you could do make 1000 bucks and they're gone in a week or two, you're like, thank God, you know, I can keep rolling. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm so curious with that. I mean, aside from the film stuff, what were some of the other things that you did to make money during that time? I mean, you just mentioned your first summer there at 16. Do you remember some of the the weirder or just more interesting jobs you had or, or things that you would do to make a buck to be able to keep climbing? Yeah, I, you know... After my first summer, I remember going back home to the Bay Area and I worked at a Christmas tree lot <laughs> for whatever time that was. That was kind of just a little quick, odd job. <clears throat> my stepdad was a construction guy, so I'd catch a few days working there or something. But as far as Yosemite went, I became a, a climbing guide. Uh, mm. I guess I must have been 18 then, but Lloyd Price was the director. And, and uh, you know, and that, that just, a side note, how fast things can happen for you at a young age, you know, like when you first come, start going to the mountains at 14 or whatever, 15, you buy a rope, 16, you know, you spend your first summer, you're on site butterballs or whatever, at the cookie and you're <laughs> catching on to the whole wave, 17, you climb El Cap, you know, but then because I had all that climbing credibility here, I could become a Yosemite climbing guide, which was a big deal. So that, that kind of kept me going <clears throat> with the rescue team stuff. And worked as a ski repairman one winter at the uh, ski shop over here, cleaning skis. I even worked trail crew once here in Yosemite. Mm. That wasn't until the 80, 80s, though. But as far as all the 70s and climbing goes, it either was some kind of little movie thing that I've been describing or the climbing guide. Not, not a whole lot of different things, really. Mm. Maybe someone needed help carrying some gear somewhere or something. Well, I want to back up a couple steps. I mean, you mentioned showing up to the to the valley for the first time at 16, spending your first summer there. I ultimately would love to 
just hear what it was like. Like, I'd love to hear what a day in the life of Camp 4 was like back then. And I think there's so much to dig into there. But maybe before we jump into that, could you tell me about your high school climbing class? Yeah. It was fascinating to me to learn that Ron Kalk actually started climbing at an indoor climbing wall. That really blew me away. I was I was shocked to learn that. Right. And, and thanks for bringing that <laughs> up because it's fun again to think what what sets anybody on a particular trajectory in their life? Like what events happen? My mom remarried when I was 12. So with a stepdad and stepbrother and a friend at 12 years old, we came, he took us to Yosemite for my first time. And we walked up past Vernal Falls, Nevada Falls, camped out in the Yosemite Valley, went up the backside of Half Dome. So we're standing on top of Half Dome at 12 years old. Hmm. Then you go back from that trip and uh, the uncle that I inherited and cousin, they liked rock climbing. They took us to Mount Tamapias and was like 13 <clears throat> to do some rappelling or top roping. And it was interesting. But at that time, I had a, a nice little like what they call BMX bike. Now we just called them sting, stingrays or something. Bicycle. We used to build big jumps and see how far we could fly. I thought that was way more fun to see how far you could fly on these jumps we build in the hills. But the climbing was kind of interesting. And then uh, the high school that I went to, they took us right away from freshman to sophomore year on a 20-day backpack trip. I tell that story a lot, but it's so significant to me that the adults at that school that had started a mountaineering class Lauren Lansbury, one of the greatest save, saviors for so many of us kids in mm. the 70s that are running around up in the hills, you know, smoking weed or whatever they were doing. <clears throat> and, you know, it, it kind of a crazy time and a good crazy, not bad. But he could bring us kids and put us in line and discipline us and teach us uh, map reading and you know orientation and all this kind of stuff. But they started um, that wilderness trip, they called it. So we went into Northern Yosemite 20 days during that 20 days. They gave us three days by ourselves if you wanted to. So at 14 years old, I could have a, a, my own camp away from everybody. Couldn't hear him, couldn't see him for three days. They'd come check on you every once in a while. Wow. Then they offered us rock climbing. So we had rock climbing. And then the cousin on that trip who kind of must have read more rock climbing books, he was like our expert. And, and while we were doing this climbing, he brought up this guy's name, Yvonne Chenard, and, and about being a Yosemite climber. And I'd seen pictures of Royal or those guys before you know in some book or whatever it might have been a north american wall real impressed by royal's hat and his red shirt you know and the knickers and, and just the mystery of who are these guys how do they do all this and so my cousin said you know it would take at least 20 years to be as good as yvonne chenard so that's <laughs> the memory of yvonne chenard in 20 years and we're out there and we're going to start climbing with these top ropes and on that day of climbing lauren lansbury our ex-marine coach who, you know, is he really going to say something like, I'll bet anybody a milkshake if they can climb up this crack. So I climbed it and I won a doggone milkshake <laughs> off of a Marine, <laughs> you know? So I think at that point it was like locking in, like there's something to all this. Hmm. There's a way here. And I, but the, the beautiful thing is we were being encouraged by responsible, respectful adults that were teaching us the, the art of climbing as a way to protect yourself and tie the knots and do all this kind of stuff. So then <clears throat> back in the classroom in my sophomore year, I became the, the teacher's assistant, you know, and, and we came up with these different projects where we repel off the building. And then somehow he got the okay to start gluing on little rock rocks and wood blocks in the multi-purpose room on the wall. 
<laughs> so we, we were building an indoor climbing gym in 1972 or so, three. Wow. <laughs> and, and then we would do demonstrations like for whatever they call it. Uh, I don't even know what they call it now when the parents come to the school and, you know, they have all these exhibits and stuff. And so I remember doing an exhibit of the climbing and climbing up over the rafters, uh, over the whole multipurpose room, like aid climbing, you know, <laughs> you know, so it was so encouraged to do this. But it's, and this is where it's hard to articulate the vibe because the vibe is looking at basic rock craft with Tom Frost on the cover, right? And that's such a significant picture of his calmness and his solid connection. And that there's techniques to learn to get like Tom Frost to be on El Cap solid and connected, but also confident and safe to make a, 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 a passage through some kind of route like that, <clears throat> you know, to be a Yosemite climber. So the idea of being a Yosemite climber in my head was, was I don't even know what to compare that to, but it was the, the, the highest level you could achieve is if you could become a solid Yosemite climber. Mm. And where did, uh, where did Rattlesnake Ridge come into play? Oh, man, here you go again. <laughs> Messing with my memory. Rat okay, once you caught on, they took us to Castle Rock, which was a little ways away. <clears throat> Beautiful sandstone. And I don't know how we found out about it, but closer to my house in San Carlos was uh, in near Portola Valley, near the Stanford Linear Accelerator where they smash atoms or whatever they do in that two-mile building. <laughs> that is the beautiful rolling hills, oak trees, and all that. And there's a, a ridge of sandstone that pops up. And it's, we called it Rattlesnake Ridge. Now they call it Jasper Ridge. And Stanford has taken it over because of its rich biodiversity. But as kids, I used to ride my 10-speed. That's what they used to call them back then. 10-speeds <laughs> over there, stash my bike, go through a hole in the fence. I don't even know what the fence was there for. And go up and boulder on this this little ridge and, and throughout the, the hills there. And there was a guy there now that, that I'm remembering. And he somehow was an older guy and, and even had some like cord knickers, you know. And, and some other kind of, what well, he looked really established climber guy. And he was around, <laughs> I don't remember his name, but he, I would talk with him about stuff, you know, and he maybe bent up to Yosemite or whatever. But on top of this ridge, there was this steep little vertical wall, maybe 10 foot boulder or something, or a little less. And we'd boulder on that, but you would feel like you were on the vertical, right? Mm -hmm. Which would match the picture of Royal Robbins in his basic rock craft book where it says the title says face climbing or something and he's just in that kind of you know so you're you're kind of mimicking all this stuff in your mind like you're connecting with those guys by practicing at this area you know what a thought that a teenage kid can be going to a place like that to connect and to literally and figuratively have something to hang on to and pull yourself up into mm. a, a world that's going to show you a whole future of possibilities because that's what we are intrigued about, I think, as climbers, is our imagination to see how far we can go to master the art of climbing and, and learning about yourself and so forth. So it all started there. I think the seeds were being planted in me at, at that place because of its beautiful surroundings. The sandstone has a nice texture on it. And it was, it was kind of a way to, it was something to go to because even at high school, my junior year, we'd have these hour and a half long classes and they'd give us a break, like for history class or whatever it was. And then I'd ditch. I wouldn't go back after the break. I'd go work out down in the, these jungle gym bars, do pull-ups and dips and all that. And, or sometimes I'd get on my bike and ride to Rattlesnake Ridge. And I'm so thankful that 
the intelligence that I had in me somewhere said, this is where you need to go and not be in that classroom hmm. where they're teaching you some kind of history that's not true anyway. And, then, <laughs> and in that in that particular class, pick up on this. So it, at one point in that class, we had a test and I didn't have a clue about any answers. <laughs> and they, everybody, they handed out the papers for everybody to fill out and everybody's heads down and I'm I'm just kind of looking around and wait a few minutes. And I just signed my name at the bottom of the page, you know, for whatever is my test. <laughs> and after about five minutes, I just went up and handed the teacher with not one answer done, but just my, my name at the bottom. <laughs> and he, I said, can I go now? <laughs> he, said, <laughs> he said, yeah, you can go. And, and he, he said, you know what? You're a real mystery to me. He said that teacher said that to me. You're a real mystery to me. And now this day, I would take that as a real compliment. but he let me go you know so that had a lot to do with rattlesnake ridge so that's where i wanted to learn and connect yeah it's so interesting i I would love to hear if you can remember what was it that brought you to camp four and to yosemite for for rock climbing for the first time i mean you mentioned going there at 12 and hiking uh you know hiking up the back of half dome yeah Uh, it sounds like your education really continued at camp four yeah, that's true. And, you know, back to the climbing class, we went up together and cl- climbed Cathedral Peak. Okay. But I'm turned out now it's hard for me to remember exactly my first times in Yosemite. I mean, that we were pretty young then, maybe 15 with that climbing class. And then I started going up on weekends. And, and I think that's the biggest impression. We went up there to Cathedral Peak. We came back down to the valley, did something there and then left. Oh, okay, I know. So back to my stepbrother and I, we used to go to Lover's Leap a little bit when we first started climbing, you know, lead climbing, because we took the Yosemite Mountaineering School class together and, and uh, 14 and 16. Then we came back, my stepbrother and I, and, and we went and did our first climb in Yosemite, which was the Royal Arches, mm. you know. So we did Royal Arches, and then we did the Nutcracker, too. And we were in, with Royal Robin's boots on, right? <laughs> and, and maybe we even had, I think we even had some kind of, knickers that we wore because that was what we saw the guys wearing and that's what's so impressionable about for young people to look to other people that you know mentoring or or inspiration so we wanted to be like them right and i think about how did we pull off the nutcracker you know how cool is that just first second climb in the valley can you share what that is for people that aren't familiar that haven't been oh yeah so the nutcracker is like a classic 5-8 climb that royal robbins put up and he used all clean protection when it was starting to shift from pitons Mm. to clean climbing with the hexes and stoppers and and it's you know it's a five pitch route or something like that i mean it's it's technical enough and back then i mean it was and it still is a, a good climb and it's probably one of the more popular climbs in the valley but to think that we did that as our second climb and it, <laughs> it wasn't that we were desperate like at our our limit maybe being risky we were solid because we had taken the assembly mountaineering class we knew to place you know gear every body length or whatever it was but it's just something to marvel. And, and the aesthetic beauty of that climb. I mean, it's mm. such good rock. You can see El Cap. You can see the cathedrals. You can look towards how, I mean, it's really going to get you good if you're a 14-year-old and you're having that kind of experience on your own with your stepbrother. You know, so I do that climb to this day and, and feel the beauty of it and the, and the connection, you know, from that point to now. Mm. So then, you know, what happened as things happened pretty quick, 
is now all I want to do is get back to Yosemite. Every time I go to the barrier, <laughs> I'm just thinking, how can I get back? So to be resourceful, I started figuring out how to get rides from people, <laughs> you know, because you got no driver's license, right? Sure. So there was somehow, I don't know how, probably the climate shop or whatever, there was a lady that would go up there to get guided by Chris Vanderveer. And Chris Vanderveer, he was one of my heroes because he was on a climbing magazine with the white pants and uh, his chalk bag and a little rack of hexes, his headband and long hair, and was just the <laughs> epitome of a of Yosemite 70s rock climber, you know. So she would go up to meet him and drop me off at Camp 4, and then I'd meet her Sunday night, you know. So who knows what I did, sleep wherever. But to go into Camp 4 at that time as a 15-year-old and see all the different people in camps there, it could be, you know, who knows who, English climbers, German climbers, you know, the Bay Area, L.A. And then the most significant, I mentioned before, was Dale Bard's big van, a bakery van converted into a little apartment. <laughs> and, and somehow we started hanging out together in the boulders, you know, how it's, it's such a great place to meet, you know, each other and we're just bouldering around. But if I was by his van, that Jimi Hendrix music would be coming out of it. Uh, a whole bunch of ropes kind of slung in the, by the window where he kept his ropes. You know, it was just like the ultimate living the rock climber dream. Mm. I think the word authentic is what really rings loud and clear so authentic you know and if we, if we just think about it now there was no instagram no facebook no internet nothing so i think everything had a, a it was simpler but in the simplicity it rang rich with the depth of creativity from that particular era of coming through the 60s into the 70s so the vibration in the air was just very positive and free you know so this is what was working on my psyche to be a part of that, which made sense is how I wasn't wanting to stay in class and go to Rattlesnake Ridge. And now you're coming up here seeing a whole group of people that are already a few steps ahead of you in that direction. And all you're excited to do is grab that next hold and keep pulling yourself up into that as a group. And then somewhere on those weekends, I guess they were noticing that I was making these boulders or doing something. So we're initially, I mean, we're, we're relating to each other real quick, right? So we're feeling that connection because we're hanging on the same holds and, and it's it's inspiring us, right? There's an inspiration of connection through holding the, the holds on the boulders or the cliffs that we all can relate to. So there's a language that's happening between us. And then the next thing I know, on one of the weekends from high school, I'm doing Outer Limits with Bridwell. Mm. You know, and he lent oh, me wow. his, his uh, hardware sling that had this kind of cool pattern on it. Like they used to make these hardware slings like almost a native design or or some kind of maybe even Spanish looking design, if I could say it that way. And he handed me the rack of hexes and stuff and I led the first pitch. And I was so motivated and, and just into it. And that's the picture I'd seen Chris Vandiver on uh, that, that Mountain Magazine cover on Outer Limits. And then here it's my chance to go up Outer Limits. And it was as if I, I, I truly felt like I was floating up it. You know, oh wow! I mean, I was placing the gear and, and <laughs> it didn't even seem hard to me. Like there was a kind of energy coming through the rope and tying you into Bridwell and a whole psych of the spirit of Yosemite and the connection of the climbing thing that was already going on for some years. And you're just leading up that. And then you lay at that the end of the pitch and then Bridwell led the second pitch. I followed and we went to the top and we walked down, right? But then imagine a kid going back to high school and sitting in a class 
trying to make sense of why are they wasting my time? No, I'm just kidding. But, you know, <laughs> you're there with this. Sure. And there's this whole other world opening up to you, you know. Do you remember uh, how you ended up there for your first full summer? Yeah, I mean, I'd been going up so much that it was obvious as soon as school was out, I was going to be up there. Mm. And, and uh, yeah, I don't even know. I don't even know how I even got there. I didn't have a car. And then how much stuff do you pack? You know, like, what are you taking? So so when you're making me go back, backtrack and think about that, none of that mattered. All that Uh, would work itself out, right? All I needed to do is get there and make sure I had my harness and, and, you know, my boots and whatever else you needed to climb. And then everything else was going to work out. And that's been the philosophy of my life the whole time. Because if you truly know what you want to do and you're not doubting yourself, you're not second guessing you will make it happen and other things will help you make it happen. So mm-hmm. we just, you know, but that was meeting Backer, Mike Graham, Kevin Worrell. The list goes on and on. Vern Clevenger. I mean, there's so many people that were part of our community. And the word community is very important because that gave us a certain kind of support and um, encouragement that we were all on the right, in the right place at the right time. And there was no other place to be in the world, <laughs> you know, ex- except with all of ourselves together, you know, Warner Brown, Jim Pettigrew, Jim Ori. you know, I could just mention name after name after name that we were all connected. We all would climb together and then maybe it's time to, to go do the nose. So John Backer, Dale Bard and Warner Brown and I, we, well, let's go do the nose, you know, and, and we were freeing all kinds of stuff up there. Just what a field day. To just enjoy the, and you know what's so cool about that is 5.11 was kind of the standard, right? Right, yeah. We know it's hard, but it's not extreme. Like you're not going to have to work out moves on the route or whatever. You either did enough hand traverses to have the endurance. You did every route of the cookie, every route at Arch Rock, you know, and then you're up there doing El Cap. Totally comfortable. (laughs) And again, imagine that for a youth. And, And this is what we're trying to say about the times because there wasn't a ton of information out there. You weren't never watching a video about it or anything. And I'm not trying to belittle that now. It's just to pick up on when we lose something, what do we gain? And when, you know, like Chenard had said, we got all these things now, sticky rubber and more gear, but are we any better off? Mm. He made a comment like that, but are we any better off? So we always have to keep track of ourselves, you know, what we're giving and taking, what makes the experience go a little further or not. But that's mm. where there's a richness in, in, in culture and tradition. There's a richness in the connection. It's always about the connection. So we were able to have such a connection then because it was less distracting with too much stuff, you know, and, and maybe not so many people. But you would know everyone that was on El Cap at that time. <laughs> or you'd probably lent your gear to someone that needed to do whatever they were going to do. Wow. I mean, I lent some gear to some Germans once, and, and when they left, they, they gave me their car. <laughs> <laughs> You can have this car. Thanks for that. <laughs> That's a pretty good trade. <laughs> yeah, it was a great trade because they got the car while they were here. They said, hey, you want this car? I go, yeah, thanks. You know. That's amazing. Yeah, so it was that kind of feel between people, you know, it was calmer. Man. Less, I, if it was competitive, it was in such a healthy way because we were just excited to do stuff. So you already mentioned Dale Bard and his converted uh, bakery van <laughs> and... You've said that Jimi Hendrix was kind of the soundtrack of of life back then. And uh, when we were talking earlier, you compared life in Camp 4 at that time basically to the first Woodstock. And 
I just, that brings so many colorful images to, to my mind, but I, I would love to just hear you describe what a day in the life was like oh, in yeah. Camp 4. You did ask that about half an hour ago, didn't you? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was getting carried away. Um, yeah, well, that's Woodstock thing is that people came together from all different angles to enjoy something and celebrate it and get in a harmonious kind of vibe with each other, you know? Hmm. And and that was what Camp 4 was like. Like a day in the life could be in the spring, you know? You, you wake up, you got your own tent. So as a kid, having your having a tent was a big deal. That's why <laughs> Dale Bard's van represented the ultimate opportunity to have accommodations, you know, in a place like that. Like it's rainproof and the whole thing. And, and it's setting the bar for like, how much do you really need in mm. this life? You know, like, do you need a $400,000 house with 30 year payment? You know, I, no, no, you know? And so that was the simplicity. I keep repeating that, but there's something so significant in simplicity. So if you had your tent and you could wake up in the morning and, and maybe, you know, you're all standing around there moving towards an area in the sun, maybe it even rained the day before and it's kind of crisp out in the air and the, the blue jays are cracking, you know, and and then you're looking up at some misty clouds evaporating off Sentinel, you know. There's just this whole incredible realm you're surrounded by, you know, of of movement of nature, you know, and the sounds. And so, the thing about sense of place for a human being, as I reflect on that, was being ingrained in every part of my being, with the sounds, mm. the sights, the smells of pine. You know, all that. And then also the very, the social realm of it, you know, the, the visiting, the anticipating what climb are we going to do today or, you know, or, or, or getting together and say, would you like to go? Should we go down to the cookie or what are we going to do? So it was wide open with the possibilities of we could do whatever we wanted to do. Mm. And But it wasn't like it was just going around to party and hang out. No, we were choosing to do things that were very challenging and took dedication and, um, and respect and responsibility to know the art of all this stuff, right? And if you think about place and hexes, that's uh, you need to really connect and move at a certain different tempo and rhythm. So a day in the life had a certain tempo and rhythm to the whole thing, you know? So depending on the time of year, we might want to get out early in the summer and go climbing, but then we had to go across the meadow to the river and work on our tans and go swimming, right? <laughs> so that could be a, depending on the season. So again, we're rolling with seasons, spring, summer, autumn, winter. You know, but but that first summer, you know, it's hard to to put it in words because when you're living in the moment like we were doing then, and it, every moment is like an adventurous step into one. We wonder what we might do next, and there's so much to do there as a kid. Like we're saying, swimming, hiking, bouldering, one pitch routes, go for little longer routes, you know, and, and just be immersed in the beauty of being able to be on the higher cathedral rock and look across at El Cap, you know, and daydream about maybe doing some other route over there. So a, a typical day would be your imagination is getting a little bit more open to how you can even experience something more because the place is leading you into whatever the next opportunity is to climb something and um, and get to know your your partner more or, you know, and, and, and such a brotherhood too, you mm. know. You know, people from Canada, this guy, George Manson, like when after Bridwell and Long in uh, West Bay did the nose of the day, I go, I'd like to do that. But I knew that they fixed pins up to Sickle come days before because Sickle was kind of a hassle to get to. So there was fixed ropes to Sickle. And I said, I just met this guy, George. He's just a cool guy from Canada. Had this long blonde hair ponytail down his back. 
And we would just kind of hit it off. He'd say, George, would you want to go up and do the nose? And uh, just to belay even? And he goes, sure, I'll, I'll belay just to watch you do it. So you, you would catch on with him, one of the greatest people you'll ever know. And he blazed me. We do the nose together. And, you know, just for a quick side story. And so I said, okay, I'll meet you at the 3.30 in the morning. It was a full moon, longest day of the season. And, and he said, yeah, I'll be sleeping over by the park, old parking lot, El Cap. Then I'll, I'll get up at 3.30 in the morning. I'm sleeping my van out in the parking lot or wherever. And, and I'm walking around the woods and I'm saying, George, get up. And it's not George, it's some other people sleeping, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'll never forget it. And I'm, I'm like, God dang, where's George at? And then I finally find him, you know, and we just take off. And we just got our little Hawaiian shirts on or whatever, wearing nothing. And just took off and did the, the nose in a day from sickle, you know. <laughs> And that's the kind of experience we were having, kind of on the fly. Just we were, people were really tuned in to each other, and and uh, again, it's hard to describe the connections we were having and in, in, in the timing of everything. Hmm. That that's getting back to a typical day. <laughs> well, it it does really. I mean, you can't look at your. Uh your climbing accomplishments without noticing a Jimi Hendrix theme. So you've, you know, you've named some of your most prominent first ascents after some of his songs. Uh, of course, Astro Man and Midnight Lightning, uh, which is probably the most famous boulder problem in the world at this point. Uh, I would love to hear, I mean, was, was he a, a strong influence on you? Was that just the music of, of Camp Four? Was that just kind of floating through the trees and, why those names? Was it those songs in particular, or did they just make good root names? You know, when you're making me think that, I was in seventh grade or eighth grade, and I remember having that album, Are You Experienced, Jimi Hendrix, you know, like a 13-year-old kid, you know, <laughs> and from the Bay Area, the music scene. So you were already been being hit by the 60s with all that soundtrack, The Doors, and it's hard just to understand how that gets in your hand or why we're connecting to that. But it was in the it was in the air. So then the mystery of that timing in, in the sixties, sixty-nine or or seventy, you know, I wasn't really climbing too much. I'd been around up here, but it was already in my hands, Jimi Hendrix, the Rolling Stones and all that stuff. And uh so there was the the creativity that they were putting out there. But, and even the songs and the lyrics had to do with social issues, you know. Because in the Bay Area, we had big-time protests in Berkeley. We had Haight-Ashbury in, in the, uh, San Francisco. And mm. I remember with our parents, we'd go up there just to see the hippies, you know, <laughs> and drive through it and go, man, look at all, that's just wild. So at that age, you're, you're kind of soaking up an, an idea. What is that really, you know? But there's something interesting about it. There's something free about it. And then there's something serious about it, you know. Like protest, Vietnam protests is a real thing. I had friends a little bit older than me that went to Vietnam and they would come back in a wheelchair, mm. you know? So you were living wow. that firsthand. So if it was, you know, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young singing songs about it and it had an energy to it and it kind of moved you, you were connecting to social issues, but also the creativity to express those social issues into a possibility of change, mm. right? So there was a wave of change that wanted to happen. And it was through conflict and beauty, the beauty of conflict. And so however we subconsciously moved with that, myself, I should say, but it came into the circles of, of the Valley Climber, Yosemite Climber with the, the music that was around that kind of, like when they, when they have a movie, they always have the soundtrack. That's why we're saying soundtrack. So there was a paralleling motivation that we were 
really climbing like Jimi Hendrix was playing his guitar, right? Hmm. We were sharing that willingness to completely commit to something. So I think we felt the commitment of his expression through his guitar that pushed us further into what we wanted to do uh, in that colorful, creative, free way. You know, the, the freedom of that. Led Zeppelin, the same thing. You know, and, and it's, so it's really an impressive thing about human existence on this earth that, that culture and tradition always had music and songs and things that inspired us to express ourselves and, and relate to each other, you know. So this was a time for that. And, and it just played itself out because I, I can only try to get into the psychology of human psyche that if you're hearing Jimi Hendrix play with such incredible abandon and, and flow that how else were you going to get over the lip of midnight lightning? You know? <laughs> like you, you, you were working with that same kind of energy, I think, and connecting to something that was the art of rock climbing that was coming through generations of Leighton Core, Yvonne Chouinard, Royal Robbins. They all had the Chouinard mantle, the core fate, you know, core boulder, the Pratt boulder. You know, they were inspirations writing their songs and the boulders and their, their signatures. Then we were building ourselves off of that, you know, so hmm. that's why it's all connected, right? It shows us that it's all connected. Yeah, it does. I would love to hear more about Midnight Lightning. That's just, I mean, 1978. I would love to just hear you describe a little bit more of the context, uh, you know, in, in regards to what that boulder problem meant at that time. Yeah. And uh, because everything was unfolding and it was unfolding in a way that it wasn't going to be like your, your sponsor is going to give you, a, you know, that thousand dollars you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that wasn't there. So there wasn't this kind of paranoid thing about doing stuff, if I could say it that way. I don't, I, I don't know if paranoid is the right word, but that pressure to do something outside yourself. Mm. So it was truly inside ourselves. And I'm not against sponsorship. Let's not make that a point. It's just that there's a different experience happening when you're inside yourself and, and you're truly feeling the connection individually and then together. But it's not like someone's going to take something from you or that if they did it first or not, you know, you're not getting rewarded outside of that uh, opportunity of your own personal experience, if, if I could say it that way. So we were building ourselves up, enjoying the flow of, of every different boulder we could do. And then as the story goes, John Yablonski was he's the one that saw the holds there and started thinking that there was something possible. And I can remember to this day, because I used to go skiing up at Badger Pass and it was in February. And I guess there wasn't too much snow around the valley. Must not have been. And I was walking with my skis out of Camp 4 to go get a ride up to Badger Pass and go skiing. And uh, there was Backer and Yablonski standing over by that boulder problem kind of playing around. And I looked at it and I went over and checked out what they're doing. I go, wow, look at that. And then next time I came back and started working it too, you know, and then <laughs> we just kept going after it. And and it's really exciting to think about that. We had worked out enough doing our hundred fingertip pull-ups a day or hangs and all this stuff, bouldering to hand traverses that we were primed to figure out how to get over that, hmm. you know? And so it was just something we were working on. It had the excitement, but it was, it was still in the rhythm of everything. Right. And that's why maybe this comparison to music, like the, the, uh, bands are looking for their next song or how to write something. So they're so immersed into it that it was kind of, we were just looking for our next song, our, our next big hit, right? <laughs> and uh, so that, because of the creative flow and unfolding there, 
It wasn't like, oh, this is going to be midnight lighting, the greatest boulder problem that ever, they'll be the most famous boulder problem. We had no clue. All we were thinking about is how do you get from that hole to the ne that next hole, right? And, th and then there was the lip move. So what I remember about it is over time working, and then there was a day out there. And, and pick up on this, man, we have to remember, there was no boulder pads and no boulder ratings. So this wasn't V anything. This was, this was right. just the Columbia boulder in Camp 4. That's wow. all it was. You know, and that's something to try to grasp, you know, no guidebook for it, nothing. And uh, I'll never forget it, man. I was, I was get, I had my foot over the lip pushing and Bridwell was down there and a whole bunch of people kind of spot you, right? Hmm. So you're just pushing, pushing, and all of a sudden you get that moment, like probably when you're pushing a little weight on the bench press and you can break through that next move, you know, where you don't get stuck <laughs> and it and reach up, grab the bucket. There's a, a good hold in there. I was like, oh my God, I did it. <laughs> A magical moment, right? Like, like somehow you broke through it. And, and, and for me to think about one of my great heroes is Jerry Lopez surfing the, the pipeline, right? Hmm. And, and I don't know what it must have been like for him when he caught that first wave and blew out of that tube, right? Hmm. Like you, you, you harmonize yourself with something waiting to be done, you know? And then it became very significant, like him in that pipeline, one of the first guys. And for to sort of catch that little ride over Midnight Lightning at that moment was so beautiful in its expression of all of us being together. And that's how I felt. I felt like we were all together doing that, mm. you know? And then of course, Backer, then he, he was working on, he broke a little bit of this one thumb hold. It didn't change the, the uh, difficulty, but I thought, well, that's kind of cool. Maybe we're kind of sharing the boulder now. Oh, interesting. You know, yeah. It, like I say, it was a little underclean. And it, you just grabbed it a little different. It was like a, a half inch more. But it wasn't like the bolt hold or something became a bucket. It was that undercling at the lip when you pull up. But, but anyway, then he spent some more time and finally did it. And then I did it again, too. But the, it's kind of cool to think, for whatever reason, that no one really repeated that, I think, for five years. Wow. So that's a mystery to think about. What level are we at when we're at our potential? And what significance is it in the stages of raising the level? Like the people mm -hmm. that come along, you know? like Wolfgang, whoever shows up and just, do we take it a little further? You know, I hadn't planned to ask about this, but now I'm so curious. You had that offhand comment about all the, you know, the hundred fingertip pull-ups or whatever it was that you guys were doing. Of course, John Backer is known for some of his training, you know, backer ladders and all of his pull-ups and stuff. What were you guys doing at the time? I, I think uh, these days, so many of us just lose some of that playful intuition about training. Yeah, uh, that's point. something I always am fascinated by, you know, looking back at Camp 4 and, and the early days in Yosemite. But what what kind of stuff were you guys doing for training? Well, we, we had our fingerboards in camp. But I want to step back even further because sure. I, I yeah. say 100 fingertip pull-ups because when I was still in the Bay Area, I would hear rumors about the, the Yosemite climbers doing 100 fingertip pull-ups. And they probably <laughs> were doing 10. Who knows? <laughs> But if I heard 100, that means I'm going to do 100 and I'll do them in sets of 5, 10, whatever I'm going to do. And I, I would, at home, I would find any door jam or anything and I would always try to pull myself up on the smallest edges. So see, and even at the, the high school, they had some brick, brick wall, right? So we used to climb on that. So there's something interesting about what you just said, playful training. There's an inspiration in there to mimic the idea that in your imagination, you're on, on a climb. You're preparing to go to a climb, but you're just climbing on a building because it's available, mm. you know, and you're not like structured in like uh, systematic training or whatever they all do, you know, more professional approach. 
at that time it was your training was building your psyche because really, I mean, I'm sure that's how the training is now kind of, but I don't even know how to bring that up at the moment to think about the difference of, of being so specialized in training now, as opposed to the playful training, as you suggest. And so in the playful training at the high school, I would do a hundred pull-ups a day and a hundred bar dips and then hmm. traverse on this little uh, rock. I mean, not rock, but brick wall that was there. And then of course go bouldering as much. So I think there was as much time put on the, the boulders as a way of considering training somewhat, you know, we did, I think even doing midnight lightning wasn't like we were specialized in bouldering yet. Mm. Get me? Like we were just working our way up to practice and climbing. I mean, bouldering is a way to get up on the roots, you know, to have more power on, on the longer roots somehow. So it wasn't to specialize yet. So the training we were doing was, um, Mostly fingertip, I think, training and some endurance training on the boulders. And how did, I'd love to hear, actually, how did that change over time? I mean, you ended up doing the first free ascent with John Backer and, and John Long of Astroman, 1975, which was uh, the hardest long free route in Yosemite for, I think, another 10 years. I mean, it was way ahead of its time, cutting edge. And yeah. then from then, you know, over the next couple decades, you continued to to establish the cutting edge all the way up to, to magic line in 1997. I mean, you know, 514C. It's such an interesting thing to think about your climbing career, if we can call it that. Yeah. And, um, you know, maintaining that cutting edge through all this change in the sport. Yeah. How did your approach to hard climbing or, or training or, uh, I don't know, how, how did all that evolve over all those years? Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, well, the main thing is when I kept, when I started out with Rattlesnake Ridge and bouldering and, and the inspiration, the playful training, like you're talking about, there's something that's so, um, authentic in your love to go climbing and the inspiration you get that it isn't so intellectually approached, if you will, or, or the back to the planning. It's just that you're moving with this, man, how do you even put this in words? Because it must be like, a, I always like to think about the surfing because I'm such a fan of surfing, but when the, the rhythm of the ocean, that the surfer's out there long enough, you can feel those waves coming, you feel the timing. So I think for me, it was so much in my system of how to move on the rock and how to, how to you know, do the fingertip pull-ups or do the boulder or whatever, and just keep catching these waves. So the Astro Man thing came from all of our climbing beforehand at the Arch Rock. You get to Arch Rock and Arch Rock itself, when you enter Yosemite, pretty much spells out all the climbing in the valley. You've got, we, I remember my friend and I doing a route called the entrance exam there. It's a freaking wicked, scary chimney of mm. all things that pinches off and you got to kind of go into this tight off width slot. And I'm thinking, how the heck did we pull that off at 15, you know? <laughs> and maybe not even protected that well. So you're getting familiar with the granite on a, on a level of psyche, you know, like, like how to fit your body and move around and, 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 harmonize with it there's some kind of mysterious intelligence that goes on in us humans to get a feel for something right that's what i'm trying to get at a feel for something so that that's blending with your brute force of being able to hang on your fingertips for with one hand for 19 seconds or whatever <laughs> so but but developing the techniques was huge right so you're getting this repertoire of movement and psyche and and endurance and and being able to read the rock and understand it so you're doing all those roots art arch rock new dimensions these are incredible classics too, connected to guys like Barry Bates, 
an incredible Yosemite climber to put up a, a lot of classics. And, and he had that kind of soulful realm to him too, that he was just a natural to, to climb and, and doing routes like that. So you're being so impressed by the aesthetic beauty of these climbs and getting those finger locks and the, the jamming, you know, it's so much technique. So we learned so much of that, but, and I love the fact that by the time we went up to go check out Asterman, Backer and I, he had led that, Backer got the lead up to the corner, which was that little bouldering moves, you know? And I thought, this is cool because our bouldering is paying off to do that kind of move on this. And then I got to lead that corner pitch. And that, that is, will probably always be one of the most memorable leads of my lifetime hmm. to start up the endurance corner and it's never been free climbed. And it's, it's so aesthetically beautiful with its, you know, big open book corner, classic stemming and, and thin hand jams, good hand jams, going to a lie back, you got one six hex left, you put it in and you go to the, the anchor, right? You know, and your pump, your pump is just exactly right that you can manage it. You're not mm. winging it. You're not going for like, oh, I might take a 40-footer thing and, and, and making that happen. And then w when we did that, we realized, well, because Jim Donini said that route might go free if that corner would go free. So then after that, freed all the pitches. And, and you know, it was so cool. That was the first time we ever bivvied, at least myself and Backer on that route. And uh, <laughs> there was some other climbers up there, aid climbing it. And then we came up to that overnight ledge and we started taking off fixing and uh, we had our little tape deck playing, and I will never forget that too. At the base of the Harding slot, I had that lead, and and uh, you start that overhanging lie backing up there, and, and below on the tape deck was Rolling Stones. I'm a monkey man, <laughs> you know. I'm a monkey, and it's it's going through the air, and and just lay backing up in the slot, and then it was routine, a lot of routine climbing to jam, go up through the slot, you know. And then after that, you got the changing corners pitch and. Same thing on the changing corners is perfectly matched to my abilities right there to be confident and calm enough to figure it out on site, you know? So that was one of the greatest gifts ever given to me personally was Astro Man to, to have been brought into that level of technical climbing, endurance, and stacked on top of all of it on, you know, with all those pitches from Arch Rock Cookie onto Astro Man and be able to make that passage. But what was so great about it, it was really within your ability and, and you didn't have to thrash around too much. You know what I'm getting at? Mm. And, uh, mm -hmm. So that was a great gift from nature and, and to feel an incredible connection with the place, but also following a certain protocol of learning the art of protecting yourself and being a true Yosemite climber. And I try to say that with the mystery of what does that really mean? Because I don't know exactly, but there's something in the, our, our legacy of of the people that we always like to mention, you know, if it's Chuck Pratt, Tom Frost, Ray Robbins, all those guys, there's something about those guys that established a certain style and understanding of the techniques that they passed on to us, you know? Mm. That's incredible. <laughs> I'm just smiling. Thanks for sharing all that. <laughs> well, thanks for asking, because it, it's, it's not easy to put the feelings into words sometimes. And then the, mm. at this stage of life to just I, like, it's the first time I've ever said it to myself that it was a great gift given to you, you know, but what does that mean? And as we work today and you know, with our kids, we're trying to understand that you are the beauty of nature, you know? So it, as I cultivate these experiences, and I think truly it was a gift that, that my hand could fit in to the cracks and, and wedge myself in a way that would find a harmonious connection to maneuver up. And really, you're, you are becoming a part of the cliff with your, yourself. Mm. 
And, and that, that's a high level to get to of the understanding of the richness of rock climbing as a way to know who you are as a human being and to have an incredible experience that challenges you on many levels of yourself, but many levels of having a deeper respect for the beauty of nature and even creation. And even when I talk about stuff, it's, it's not that I'm necessarily trying to be religious or spiritual. It's just kind of the way it is, right? <laughs> it's the opportunity to have a great, a rich experience in Yosemite, which didn't mean money, you know? That's back to when we first came up. It, it was back to the $1,000 theory, you know? Like, <laughs> we, we just needed enough to get by because the richness was in the freedom to move up the cliff, you know? So you ended up naming that route after a Jimi Hendrix song. That's a theme in yeah. your first ascents. Uh, you also named a couple of your mo more prominent routes after books by Carlos Castaneda. Right. And I would love to ask you about the influence that his writings had on, on you at that age. For people that are listening, he was an author uh, in the late 60s. He wrote a series of books that described his training in shamanism. And uh, I've, I've never read his work, but it seems like that was something that maybe had a, a pretty strong influence on your spirituality, if you want to call it that, or, or yeah. just this kind of soulful connection that you feel to nature and to the rock. Yeah, thank you. You know, that's another one of those things that was just in the mix. Like, I can't even remember where the book even came from, who had it first or how it got my hand, but it was things like that that could be on the camp for table. Ah. You know, like autobiography <laughs> of a yogi, you know, they were just around. And so there would be that conversation would be floating, but not exaggerated, just be there. It was just part of it. Right. So the Castaneda thing came in and it was so intriguing because for me, I guess personally, I think for others, too, it was about living in this magic and sort of um, what's the other word metaphysical or whatever. I don't really use that word, but you know what I mean? Like a spiritual consideration, you know, and probably. Uh, this drug thing, I didn't really get into this drug thing, but I think in the 60s, people were looking for some kind of enlightenment through that, or, you know, it wasn't just a recreational thing. So there was, there was that, that was in the air that was floating in, and that was part of the Camp 4 thing, but not as exaggerated as Valley Uprising, where they're showing Bridwell like he's high all the time. That Even for him, I know that he looked at it as a way to kind of uh, be open to a vision of some kind or, or some kind of experience that would be spiritual. And that's because of the lack of, of having a tribe and tradition and cultures and, and initiations. But in the Carlos Castaneda, he's connecting with a, um, a medicine person or a source or whatever you want to call him, a shaman in, in Mexico, wherever it was. So it was so intriguing for us to read into that and feel like we were kind of in that flow of the magic of the times that was was evoking our senses so it, it made sense to to think about the stories he was relating to these incredible visions of the world beyond the particular reality that was presented to us and that's back to the 60s when they were trying to challenge the establishment you know they were in berkeley they were trying to say about this machine you know to, to we got to stop the machine and, and now we see we're still stuck with all that so in that time i think it was trying to realize that there was another perception of reality to this world you know and in that reality we were moving was hinting at that to us you know that there's something especially in Yosemite Valley you know it's it's so powerful in its beauty but absolute mystery are you kidding <laughs> to think about millions of years of shaping that place once it was underneath ice 
and life came and butterflies are flying around and hummingbirds. And so we were catching on to that. And so within the intrigue of that and in our own ability to find ways to, to move freely, I remember being over at Elephant Rock climbing with one of my Australian friends. And, and that's when we looked across and I said, it looks like there's a crack over there, which was eventually tales of power, but we didn't know <laughs> that it was just a striped wall and it appeared as though it was a crack. Going. So we said, we got to go check it out. So another day later, we hiked down Wildcat Creek, went across these slabs and, and he got to the base first. And he was kind of a funny jokester. And he goes, it's blank. There's nothing. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, man, we walked all the way down here because we weren't going to repel, right? We walked on <laughs> and, and uh, joined him and I get to the base and he's smiling and it's just this outrageous crack <laughs> up through this water streaked wall overhanging. Like we hadn't even seen anything like this yet, right? So that because of the inspiration, it was called, we called it Tales of Power, one of Castaneda's books, you know, and so it's so fun to think about that. And then every time I would go down to that route, I would walk down to it. And then finally I climbed it. And when I finished that one, I had an eight hex left and a sling. And when I got over the lift, there was a pointy piece of rock. I could put the sling over and an eight hex dropped into the slot. Perfect. <laughs> and, and then I wow. looked up and there's separate reality. Cause I, you could see separate reality, but I thought it'd be a finger traverse out the, the corner somehow, but there was the crack. And I'm like, oh my God, it's the next pitch, you know? So back to the the beauty of of just running into things, you know, like this outrageous adventure. And and what did that venture mean? It was meaning that nature was unfolding to keep giving you these opportunities. So then straight up, I went out, I jammed up and started out the roof with the excitement. And I made about two jams out there and I jammed back and went back down. We went out an easy way around the corner. And said, <laughs> we'll have to come back to this, you know? So that if I, I don't know if it's it's really like it's not easy to explain these things. What was the influence? But again, the sign of the times, the music, the interest in thinking beyond just the standard, you know, that's uh standard way of life, you know, with uh, the money and, and the houses and the academic education, but more of a a deeper knowing of who you are. I think that was in the air, and I think that's why we connected to the Castaneda books and, and the maybe the indigenous part of something where they talk about peyote or it was all interesting to us. Right. Hmm. I'm just thinking here, I'm looking at my notes, Ron, I'm trying to decide where to go next from there. Would you want to jump to magic line or does it feel? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. Cause you did. I mean, I get long winded cause I'm yeah. digging deep as I can to get a fi- a feel for this. No, it's all I, about I love it to me. I love it. Cause it, in a, it's great. And, and then if you, if you do go to Magic Line, remember, I got to go to Europe, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and this is what's one thing I wanted to say, too, is when the 70s ended, like right on time, like when they said 79, because I'd gone over to Pakistan and almost done the decathlon of all the climbing and climbed Uli Biaho and back in the Karakoram, Triangles, all that stuff. First ascent. It was such a big adventure. It just capped it all, capped the whole thing. Hmm. Came back and then I just started working. So when the 70s ended, that ended. It hmm. just ended. It was, it was like people went off in different directions. There was really no more exact camp for as we knew it. Then the next ones were coming in and then backers started soloing a lot and getting attention. And so it just kind of went off and wherever it went off. And then in 1986, I got to go to Europe to go into climbing competitions. 
And it, and it kind of, well, actually, there's more movie stuff in the 80s that kind of got me back into how am I going to make a little more than $1,000 <laughs> and, and survive. Then I got an opportunity to go to um, Europe to start the climbing competition. Then I met all these other guys. And you, you felt that spirit had shifted over there. And they were moving with the inspiration that they caught on with us about free climbing. And then they had their cliffs to do it. So there was a rejuvenation in my psyche to, to try harder. And, and so it just was still a lot in me to do. So I was learning and, and getting motivated and then came around eventually. Well, that's one of the reasons I'm talking to you is because Alan Watts, right? Mm. So however it worked, I came around and did to bolt or not to be. And Alan was one of, you know, he's such a great person. I loved the talk you did with him and I love him as a person. And and he was explaining to me, Ron, it's like boulder problems on top of boulder problems. <laughs> if we were so fixated on this whole hangdog thing. And I, I mean, I was never that fixated, but you know, I did, it just seemed right not to hang the rope, but the roots weren't as hard to do. You didn't need to do it. So mm. doing to bolt or not to be was a kind of a breakthrough for me. And Jerry Moffat was helping me learn to work a route and all that. So it, my mind opened and it shifted to, okay, this, this is meaningful and a great contribution. These roots, these guys are doing. And then eventually going back to magic line, I'd come across that route. A guy told me about it and said it might be 514. And then uh, I went up there and, you know, to think about walking by that area at 12 years old, coming back and finding it and, and locking into it as a project and uh, being challenged by it. You know, it was it was an ultimate extension of Tales of oh, Midnight Lightning, Thriller, uh, Rostrum, <laughs> Astro Man, Tales of Power, Separate Reality, Heaven, Peace all of a sudden there's magic line, you mm. know? And this is gonna be the one that tests you to find out who you really are. Cause it's so thin and so awkward and, and slabby, but not, and, and footwork. And, and so it was an incredible experience to have been through all these different generations of people and motivations, inspirations to express it into that climb. And, and I was even sponsored at the time. So that's why I feel for being sponsored because you kind of look for that next picture and the next thing and you get some attention, you know, magazine mm. stuff. But I had to get to the point where I had to let go of everything except the meaningfulness of my love to make a move and see if I can make the next move. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, that simple. And long story short, that was the biggest lesson that I just 100% love to climb, doing it for yourself or the inspiration to share with others. And it didn't have anything about economics. Like Yvonne Chouinard said, we really appreciated rock climbing when it had no economic value. Hmm. Now that's not to take away from economic, but just to keep the horse in front of the cart, you know, the, and if I would say it at that point, it is your spiritual connection. That's the ultimate reward throughout life is what you really got for yourself, hmm. your experience. So Magiline went to the next level. And I remember working on that route and who knows what time of year it would be. And, be at the late in the day and nobody be around and walk back out with whoever I was with, see the last glow of light on half dome, the sound of the waterfall, you know? And that's the one thing I could say about going back with my son Lonnie and playing him and watching him go through his whole thing about it, you know? And one of the days he was, he came down and he was getting his stuff ready. I walked out to a little area where you can view the waterfall and again, half dome. And, and as I was just being there 20 years later, playing him and watching him, and I said to myself, I am that waterfall. Hmm. Now, I didn't say it to myself. That was the thought that came to me. 
I am that waterfall. And, and that's what Yosemite took me to that place physically and mentally that gave me that spiritual connection as a human being to be in the flow of life, literally, figuratively speaking, like that waterfall, you know. So, so the magic line took me to another level that was, didn't have anything to do with numbers or sponsors or whatever. It was just a solid connection with yourself and the place. Hmm. So that, that was magic line in a, in a short version. Because <laughs> it was the year, you know, it took me a lot. Of, I went up there so many times. It was pretty fun. <laughs> I watched the tree leaves. They were green. They turned brown. They fell off or whatever, or yellow. I mean, and uh, it was just this whole tour. And the water was in the spring, you know, it's raging, mist coming over. You only got so much time to work on it. You know, it's funny when you're obsessed by a project because you'll, you'll still go if it's early or it's late or it's cold or it's, you know, whatever it is. But the time I did, that waterfall was just frozen. <laughs> yeah, December 6th, 96, and then that 97 flood came and then everything shifted again. Like the valley was closed for a long time. And Wow. Yeah, it's interesting life cycles, huh? Mm. Yeah, I am the waterfall. That's that's yeah. beautiful. Just came to me. I, I I wasn't trying to think about it. I just was standing there, and it was you. Are, I am that waterfall, and and uh, we are. You know, we're in the cycle of life, mm. and I think that's was my my whole journey has brought me to that. For my personal experiences to know that, and now we're doing our best to share that through our nonprofit Sacred Rock Education Nature's Way, we call it, to help our youth get a foundation in life to feel that connection, hmm. feel that love from the earth. Because as human beings, we need to feel loved and nurtured. You know, we suffer when we're not uh, loved and nurtured, but but we have so much that nurtures us is that's the earth. The earth is a loving being, like a mother. That's why it's always recognized as a mother earth. And if, if we get that connection, I think, in some way, as climbers, we're, we're out there. Some part of us is looking for that connection or feeling that connection because we're in these beautiful nature places. But that what I feel like my possible contribution to all this would be to help us all get a little stronger in that aspect of ourselves, not just physically, hmm. but mentally and spiritually, you know, too. And then we can become even better caretakers, you know, and, and strengthen our whole idea of what do we really need how do we navigate this life? Because like I said, we started out in Camp 4. If you had a tent, you could build up, build yourself up from there. You know, whatever <laughs> you could get. Can you describe what Sacred Rock is? Yeah, Sacred Rock is like a, one of these dream things that comes true. I would be in Europe a lot. And, and I think when I go back home, I, I, what can I work on? I go, maybe I start a foundation or something. I remember saying, maybe I should do a book or a film. And, and the book came... Wait, what came first? Yeah, a film came. I met a guy, Sterling Johnson. We made our own film, Ascending Rhythm, with Jerry Moffat and Dean and all kinds of people. We put quotes in it, and it started to build something. Went to a film festival in Telluride. Book publisher came up to me. goes, this would be a good idea for a book. So we did a book called Spirit of the Rock, and it was just more almost stream of thought, you know, story. And then we made a film called Return to Balance. All these films were challenging me to represent what am I doing? What does it mean? And then I met that professor of education from Stanford and, and we just started talking together to do something. And I said, it sure be nice just to bring kids up here and let them have their own experience, you know. And his wife, he was the founding dean of UC Merced out here in uh, outside Yosemite. And his wife was worked social service. So next thing you knew, 
we started bringing foster kids up here for camping and going walking up trails. We just did a couple of trips without any real thought about it. We we're just curious about how it would be. And then it was so good, and we were building relationships with the people, the adults down there, that we got a nonprofit incorporated because of Kenji's wife, Nancy, who's a whiz at paperwork. And boom, we got a nonprofit. And what should we call it? I don't know, Sacred Rock. We'll spell Rock R-O-K, so we can make it seem a little bit like, what's that all about? Education <laughs> Nature's Way came from a Shoshone elder. I used to visit Corbin Harney, and he had a book was called Nature Way, The Way It Is. And I like that nature way. So we said education nature's way. And we've just been doing it for about 10 years with incarcerated kids, foster care, boys and girls club. Hmm. Now with Katie over in Bishop, we got uh, some of our native kids over there going bouldering. They have girls club, they call it. So all that has evolved into more and more possibilities of interpreting, you know, like we're trying to share here, what was the meaning of climbing for myself or what did I get out of it? And if I did get something out of it, how could I share it? How could we share it uh, in, a, in a language that makes sense and, and strengthens the next generation and makes them better off to compensate for the lack of education in public schools? It doesn't deal with human emotion or, or connection, you know. And in my feeling is we're all indigenous people from the earth. We are all indigenous. Mm. We were from somewhere, but then a lot of us got uprooted and put other places, but we never replanted our indigenous roots Hmm. through tradition and culture, because that wasn't really promoted. We were more pr promoted to be an industrialized model for school, to be employees, to run a system. And we know that this system is very challenged now. Capitalism is not dealing with equality, and it's not dealing with the, the instructions of nature to be in balance. So everything that we can learn in Yosemite, why Yvonne Chouinard runs his company the way he does, is understanding some significance of our responsibility to the natural world. Like he said, you can't do business on a plant that's, that's dying out. Mm. There'll be no business to do. So these are the lessons some of the first guys got, and they kind of started handing them to us. And then Sacred Rock and my own relationship to the Native community here in Yosemite, to be with our elders working in the Wahoga Village next to Yosemite, I mean, next to Camp 4, is taking me to the, like one lady said, at a, somebody was giving a talk, a PhD guy was giving a talk to a whole bunch of Native people, and then and. The lady said, well, we understand in your way, you have your university, you have your university, but in our way, we have the universe. So my, my extended education from Camp 4 over to Ahogo is to recognize that the universe is my uh, school. <laughs> <laughs> and when we're on El Cap looking at the stars and the sun's coming up and down, you get a clue about where you are in relationship to this beautiful existence that we have. And we don't have to muck it up through greed and, and uh, com over competitiveness or jealousies, all of the things that kind of put us in a spell of confusion to think what's the value of life anymore, right? So that's what I'm saying. When we were all moving around Camp 4, finding Midnight Lightning, we were just excited and, and in a playful, dedicated way, just in, enjoying ourselves, you might say. Or it was very healthy, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. I'd love to ask how did you balance that with performing? Because you must have had some drive, some ambition, some vision for doing things that hadn't been done. Or maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. How, how did you think about that? Yeah. No, I get you. No, that's that. Thank you. This is what's when you said I've been going, I've gone through generations and it's true. It, you know, and we're, it's the same for all of us. It's just that the you go to the next chapter and it's like, what, what is for the guys to do now? Well, we'll do El Cap in a day, you know, <laughs> or whatever it is. So, um generations right so we were working out hard and playful and then you go to the next step and the next step 
but but it's always just to enjoy yourself and and the performing problem was when you got a sponsor because mm. then you're paranoid about the money right mm. so then you think you really do have to perform so that's why i mentioned magic line was it was a, a challenge because i knew it was 514 it's in one of the beautiful places in the world and i was like god i got to do this climb but it wasn't letting me do it because of that little thing in my mind mm that it was so subtle because you do a lot of hard climbing and the top is so insecure, the movements, right? So you have to make this almost little dynamic-ish feeling move on, on your feet skating out and you're, you're on a slight leaning crack. And, and so you have to be so calm and relaxed that it's not brute force. It's kind of a mixture of your, your ability to stay, the friction on your feet and slight dynamic feeling to make this next move. And it wasn't until, like I said, letting go of all that, you know? So that, that's the world you guys are in even more extreme now is this high performance specialized. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, we weren't in that high performance specialized. So the first however many years, 15, I wasn't dealing with that. Then when I got sponsored, it made it, it had a different effect on me or even going to those climbing competitions. That was kind of strange, but fun. <laughs> but it was under this demand of something outside yourself, right? So... The beginning was inside myself and it stayed there, but it started to go outside myself. So you could get a little lost in it maybe, you know, because mm. it's back to what you said, performance. Because that's what the new words they use, send the root. I'm going to go send, send it, you know, and I'm like, whoa, where are you sending it to? Where, where are you going? You know, where do you end up? You know, so like I say, you just caught me there. I mean, that, that's a whole another three hour consideration of, of the shifting of gears throughout time. You know, that it's like our society right now where you cell phones and text messages and you're like, well, what was the difference between text message and just calling somebody? There was a lot, mm. you know, so it's the same thing in this idea because it was the same psyche. You wanted to do all the, I remember I had a tick list. I want to do this route, this route, this route, this route, you know, and, and throughout the time. But once it got more into, like, say, the industry around it, the stories around it, the magazines around it, the Instagram, all that, it kind of. I don't know if it, maybe the word it genetically modifies something that's losing some of its natural, simple instructions as human beings to connect to what you're doing and share it with each other. You know, that's why we get confused maybe with so much information. Hmm. Well, there is a question there that I'd love to dig into with you. Um, you and I have had some other conversations about the climbing industry and how things have changed and you know how more and more people are thinking of climbing as a sport training for it of course it's going to be in the olympics do you have a vision for what climbing could be well for me it could be a great opportunity to introduce younger people into a way of connecting with nature and themselves and and learning this way to think for yourself i mean if we stopped and thought what are all the benefits to climbing well you got to think for yourself Hmm. you know you got to respect gravity, you know, you got to be honest with your abilities. It has many realms to it that have an educational kind of idea, but also the freedom of, um, here's Katie, the freedom of, <laughs> of, of enjoying yourself in, in any way you want. So, so that's what we're shaping now, I think, with our, our nonprofit and, and, and Katie Lambert, bringing these young girls out there just to enjoy themselves and, you know, in, uh, appreciate each other with little uh, with adults and mentoring and all that so the future what i see is is if we can get our story straight <laughs> you know 
get some kind of commitment like Access Fund did for the, the protecting the, the landscape of rock climbing, you know, that protect areas to, so we can keep you climbing. But we need something that protects our story and, and is willing to make a contribution to our climbing community, but society in general, because the indoor climbing scene got pretty big, right? But I think we missed the boat there because we don't take life serious enough. Because of our lack of connection to the natural world, we, we can't quite realize how far out there we are now in the climate change and all that kind of stuff. We're not, we're not really dealing with it to the level that needs to be deal, dealt with. So every opportunity we have to remind ourselves that everything hangs in the balance as far as the natural law goes. Mm. So the future of climbing could realize that climbing t is really about being in nature on the rock. I like that Sharma said that. He goes, I used to go into nature to climb. Now I go to climb to be in nature. <laughs> I thought that was a nice, that was a nice comment. That is. But it took him a while to get to that point too, right? That's why we, if we stay connected, you know, throughout our ages, we can all bring the beautiful experiences, knowledge, and wisdom that we're sharing throughout our stages, but we can unify it to when we say climbing is a way of life, which Yvonne Chouinard coined that way back. When and I think that if you if you don't think climbing is a way of life, then what are you doing with your life? Hmm. Is it not? How can it not be a way of life? It's your life. So we we should be more responsible. This is what I'm saying. It the future is about education or a rejuvenation of education that has to do with reality. Climbing is about reality. Hmm. It is. I mean, how can it not be? You know. And so that will be part of our story because we always need stories to help guide us. So part of the future is to get a stronger story going and, and more broad perspective of life and connect it to every opportunity we have now to creatively engage in helping, healing, and mending this planet and all the living things is where it's at. Hmm. You know, we've been, we've been kind of run off in a linear track that's not making each generation any better off. So if you, if, does this make sense? Because like say, we left something to go to something. The history of our legacy of our climbing in Yosemite is guys were coming here to, to find these great adventures and connect. And a lot of them went off to be really great examples as human beings through the businesses or whatever they did, writing, Glenn Denny's writing about you know, Yosemite. Galen Rowell did incredible pictures and books and traveled the world, talked to the Dalai Lama. So there's a lot of that in our, our past. David Brower, a great environmentalist, rock climber, to know our stories and to think about how are we connected to that to do our contribution, you know, to make our contribution. And, and so when we get chances to win awards down in, in Hollywood, you know, for the, the best documentary, you know, with Spike Lee in the same room, we could, we could represent our climbing community and, and the kids in the gyms to say that climbing is about a, a way of appreciating nature and respecting, you know, national parks, like to be ready to, to represent at a whole nother level. And it's not easy, you know, because when you're younger, that's why I'm around an 82-year-old man, Bill Tucker, our traditional cultural elder of the Wahoga village. That's, I feel really fortunate for that. But anyway, that's, you ask me these questions and they're very big and I don't mean to complicate them. It's just that we have a, a lot of potential to articulate our story in the humanness of it and the humility of it and the humbleness of it to think we're so fortunate to have time to go rock climb in a world that's just struggling, you know? And what can we share with the world or promote that would bring our consciousness to another level of compassion and appreciation and respect and all these things that are gonna, that, that nature expresses to us through its sincerity of being life giver, 
the water gives life, the air gives life, the sun, you know, these things that we almost like this can start sounding like crazy talk, like you're, <laughs> I don't know, but this is crazy to me. If you're not observing these things and talking about them and relating to them, the whole earth had to turn <laughs> to create a new day for us. You know, hmm. we go to sleep at night and while we're asleep, the earth is turning and coming back to a new day. Is that not impressive? <laughs> you know, but we get so locked into our own thing and we get sort of self-absorbed because we want to try to figure out who we are and have our identity. Huh. And our identity could be, I'm a 514D climber. That's cool. So tell me about it. Because <laughs> your physical body, I I'm here to tell everyone your grip will loosen. Hmm. And what are you going to hang on to then? That's why we want to help with Sacred Rock, have our kids have a good foundation to know the value of yourself, to respect yourself, mm. you know? I'm someone who always tries to uh, pin things down to the practical so that we all have something, you know, we can take away. Uh, what would you say to the, the person listening to this who is maybe, you know, listening to this on their commute to or from work, they have a nine to five, they climb in the gym a couple days a week, they get outside when they can. What can we do to work towards that world? Is that a mindset thing that we, uh, that we bring to our climbing? Is it a different way of approaching climbing when we go outside? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, the first thought when you mentioned someone driving to work, I, I just naturally started to take this deep breath. <laughs> <laughs> I took a deep breath and <sighs> let it out. And went, yeah, to be calm. And I think in our own way, we, we need to stop and have a practice, you know, uh, a way of taking some time for yourself to acknowledge who you are, where you're at, and what is the most important thing to you. Hmm. So we always can keep that. You know, that's what I'm saying about a foundation for kids. Like, what are the things that keep you knowing how to love yourself and respect yourself and think each new day is another opportunity to do that and then share it with others, you know? I don't think we ever want to underestimate our power in how we affect things, you know? So it, it's a challenging question uh, to know how people are feeling out there. But, okay, well, look at the times we're in, you know, masks and uh, lockdowns and all that stuff. So maybe that's where if we can be in nature more and take time in nature and see what comes to you, then Yosemite's a beautiful place for that. You know, I, when I tease some climbers, I go, wait, did you stop down at the river for a while? <laughs> you know, they're like, huh? Like what? You know, and, uh, But taking time. I would say taking time in nature is going to be your greatest savior in this time we're in hmm. because that's that's the real where the real love and nurturing comes from is from the mother earth and we are made up of the earth and I'm not trying to talk native buddhist any of it it's just fact if you're logical and you're practical then you would agree with me that as we know it our bodies are made of the earth is that not true how much water is in our body is that not true hmm. so if we can get the value when we drink water be aware of it you know, it goes further in science that water, they say, has a memory. You know, there's something to get far. The story that we're in needs to come back. The story that's written in us needs to come into our consciousness so we can see how miraculous it is to be here in this world and not be tricked at every corner out of yourself <laughs> by something that is trying to be sold to you or something that's trying to put fear into you or something's trying to make you paranoid or feel like you could never have enough. So back in the day, we had enough. <laughs> we didn't need anything because we had the rock, we had nature, we had each other, you know. And it's so tribal in its, in its psyche, you know. So 
it's one guy said one time, we need to get back to the basics. So I think that would be something that I'll put out there. It's like, what does it mean to get back to the basics mm. and, and really challenge ourselves to what's most important to you? Is your health important to you? Just to have that awareness, you know? And then the beautiful thing about bringing your consciousness into that, if you go rock climbing, you're going to be a lot looser because you're going to be saying, I already got everything I need. Wow, yeah. But I want to make this climb. You know, then if you want to make that climb, knowing you got everything you need, you're going to be a lot more relaxed on that grip because the over grip comes from a lot of the stress and paranoia and fear of like what might happen. But I think a lot of us have done our best climbs when we had no fear of the outcome. I mean, we were protecting mm. ourselves. We weren't out there, but you know what I mean? You were lighter because you weren't scared of falling, not make the the, the belay or whatever, right? Yeah, you, you hear about that a lot, the letting go, the surrendering. There's a lot of different ways to, to phrase it. But yeah, that's definitely a theme I, I hear on the show a lot. And we should do things for our, our mental, physical health, you know. Well, let's get to that. You, you talked about daily practices. Could you tell me about your barefoot standing practice? Oh, man. Uh, you know, sometimes things are too simple and we just can't imagine it. <laughs> but a lady was teaching me Qigong for a while and I thought that's pretty interesting, you know. But then I'd go climbing and I'd try to transfer it a little bit. And, but she brought my awareness to energy through your hands and your feet and these movements. So in Tuolumne Meadows for 10 years, when I camped along the river, I'd get up at 4.30 morning, make my fire, keep my shoes off and go out to the river, look up at the stars, wherever the moon might be, wash my face in the river. But I started, I would be barefoot because, I, okay, I watched this documentary called Grounded, Earthing. Everyone should check this documentary, Grounded. Because scientific, if you need that, it'll prove that the energy that comes through our feet, which is our feet are designed with all our nerve endings and, and, you know, there for a reason. And that energy comes to your feet. So there's a whole story about that that I did look at that did further inspire me to do this. But my daily practice most days is to go out barefoot. And in, in our native circle, when, I, when I'm in that, we always make offerings. So I use water and I make my own little circle like I'm standing in it. I got a beautiful spot. I face the sun, it's coming up, you know, it could be earlier or later, whatever, but I'll just stand there and I'll just feel. And it's a practice because the more you practice it, the more you will feel. And mm. then you just start to feel that energy come into your body because we are energy. It's all about energy. So that practice, and even like say with the scientific proof is it's healthy for you. So your body's getting like a charge from that. You know, we it's almost like being plugged into something because like I <laughs> said, the feet and uh, I can't, say enough that anybody listening is take some time and try it but let your head clear you know and, and don't doubt yourself just say whatever you're feeling you know hmm. and then you're you'll get your hands will warm up more to it these things about the india people talk about chakras that's real so i think in, for climbers we should look into all this stuff because it will help you climb better to feel more about yourself and set the perspective of the reality of we're looking for freedom Freedom is a big aspect of, of being a human. And that's back to those musicians that were, they really expressed themselves in, in such a creative way. But where did that creativity come from? I think it was their ability to be feel so free, again, that you could express yourself. Mm. So to feel free in nature is to commune with the beauty that we're in and the flow of energy that comes from the sun, that comes from the water. And talk about a good feeling. And as human beings, we just want to feel good, you know. I got this thought. I, I like to come up with my own little things, you know, like the three C's, commune, communicate, and community. But my other thing is that we were all in our mother's womb, nine months. You pop out and build cord to cut you and, and cut the build cord. And there you are. You're you. 
But that <laughs> you at the time is so helpless that you can only hope that someone will hold you like your mom and put her next to your chest, put you next to her chest, and you will feel the heartbeat and the connection, the nurturing and the love. And I think we spend the rest of our lives always looking for that nurturing, that love, and that connection. So if we understand rock climbing as a way to make that connection for the nurturing and the love and the connection we have with ourselves and that climb that's giving us the opportunity like Astro Man gave me, you're going to feel a whole nother level of achievement that goes beyond numbers and difficulty and competition, you know? Mm. And that's why when it's said a way of life, if we can go further into the interpretation of what a way of life means and what a way of life can be to the real value of it, we're good. <laughs> yeah, then we're good. Then you can stand there and say, I am that waterfall. <laughs> Are you thinking anything in particular when you're standing there doing your barefoot practice? Are you repeating anything to yourself? Are you trying to no, just have a nothing. clear mind? Nothing. Okay. I, I have a, I don't even try to, this is the one of the keys. Don't try. Okay. Just don't just feel, but mm. I have to say, Part of it for me is interesting because we have our ceremonies. I know songs, hmm. like it could be a hummingbird song or a prayer. So I, I have the song. I'll sing a couple of songs, which helps. But that's connecting to our ceremony. So I don't know. You know, people could do that too. But I think get yourself in a flow of thought. You know. But the first thing I think to do is just allow yourself to just clear, just clear yourself, just stand there and see what starts to come to you. Because it's such a funny thing to just stand. I mean, for me myself too. You know, at Tuolumne, I did with a sunrise, and I kind of evolved it a little bit. Then I went to El Portel down here in the canyon. I thought, I should still go out there. Hmm. So I started doing it, and it was kind of awkward for me at first. Like, okay, how am I doing this? You know? <laughs> but then, then I got into it. Like, I realized the effect it was having on me to be calmer, to go through your thoughts, you know. And, and now it's become a practice that it just helps me connect, and I'm not thinking about too much. Um, you might hold things like I, I found that one time on the way to juvenile hall, there was a red tail hawk. So I got some of the feathers from this red tail hawk dead on the road there. And and then these are funny stories, but they're my personal ones. But it's it's interesting. So I said, you know, what? these feathers, maybe I'll just hold those just because they're so pretty. And and so I did that. And within a couple of days, one day it was real windy out here and there's a tree above me. And I was kind of thinking, should I be out here? It's kind of dramatic with the wind and the clouds. But as I was holding those hawk feathers, and I was looking towards wherever the sun was. I seen this thing was fl flying. It was something flying. It was flying in the direction where I, where I am. And it got closer and closer and went boom, up in the tree above me. And it was a red-tailed hawk. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, there's one of those things you can't explain. Hmm. Like, how does that happen? You know. So in these practices, it's kind of fun to let things flow and imagine anything is possible. You know, we live in an amazing world. So if we realize that, then we are capable, even in our climate community, to generate something that has a story that has more effect. But we, we have to be kind of more willing to go into our intuitive self. So standing there barefoot doing nothing is impossible because you're still feeling and thinking. So then it's going to be interesting. What are you feeling and thinking? <laughs> and can you keep doing it enough that you start to feel that, hey, this is benefiting me, even by the scientific uh, proof? And then how I feel, because it, it gives you patience and, and um, a time to just look all around you, you know? Mm. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah, it, it does. Because it, it, it's so ridiculously simple that it, it 
if someone, I, I do it where no one can see me. So even sharing it is kind of like, yeah, I mean, okay, I'll share this. But <laughs> it's your own personal thing. And we should have our own personal things. And we, we all do. But how much are we willing to talk to each other about it? Probably not too much. But like my one uh, Native friend said to my professor, friend, he goes, tell me, Kenji, have you ha- ever had anything happen that you can't explain? Have, have something happen to you you can't explain? And, and he, I think he was just kind of razzing back. He goes, no, not really. <laughs> and I thought, we all having something happen we can't explain. We're in a world that turns and goes around the sun in a universe that's moving. So we probably... It would behoove us to be open-minded to whatever the possibilities are, especially in the direction of helping, healing, mending our world and not being overwhelmed by all the the uh, media that blasts so much stuff at us that we sh- we just want to pull the curtains and hide out, right? <laughs> and, and they almost, you know, they, they're allowing us to do that with our lockdown stuff. So climbing is a definite way to to make our connection and open ourselves up and find these practices. And that's that's like been my evolution to find things like this. And I think it, it helps everything when we can just stop and have our feet on the earth and truly ask yourself about where am I? You know, hmm. what's, what's given me life? What, what is, how am I feeling? Because a lot of the way we've been educated is to stay in denial about how we feel. So the next time you throw a giant wobbler up there on the <laughs> red point, it's your fifth, no, your fifth day or your thousand try whatever it is you know <laughs> i'm just kidding <laughs> there's no way out of not being human here we're gonna get mad we're gonna do this but but mm. even like rock climbing we're learning to cope with the situation and make the best out of it mm. so like say standing barefoot for me is just a way to get calm find a way to um be stronger within myself yeah do you do it for a set amount of time do you do it every day or is it just yeah, it's most days, and and I don't set a time on it. Unless, although, if I do have to be somewhere, I'll I'll go ahead and just do my little offering and stand there barefoot and make a thing. But if I'm not having to be anywhere particular, I'll just go as long as it keeps feeling like it's something that I should be doing. Mm. And that's the beauty of having some free freedom of time. So, so I don't know. Sometimes I've probably been up there hours, and not even realized it. Wow. You know, on rare occasions. But if I had to say, it's probably like an hour. Mm, wow. But how cool is that, bro? See, what I'm thinking in for Sacred Rock is to help some of the people, the elder, the older people that are helping the kids, like wherever they are, juvenile hall guys. It's stressful. Like the people are stressed. And mm. we're so orientated to do something, to prove something. And what did you do today? And, and I'm, I'm looking at bringing the adults up and just sitting. I did that with one adult group that helps foster care. One of the first times in... And we went around and I was talking. We were all standing in a circle out by Cascade Falls here in the parking lot. And, and we happened to be in a circle. And I said, you know, you guys have a lot of meetings down there at your work, huh? You got to do things certain times. I go, yeah, yeah. I go, well, let's have a meeting right now about what time we want to get into. I said, so we're going to go into nature time. So I said, pointed up towards the waterfall that was raging. And the mist was swirling through the air and spinning. And, <laughs> and I said, that, see how that mist is coming off the waterfall? We want to be in that time. That's how we're going to move. That's nature time. But I was kind of jokey about it, you know, in a way, because I, I wasn't trying to be too serious, but I was testing the, the feeling for that. And they're like, oh, you know, it was just a different thought. So then we started walking up the trail, this hidden little trail, kind of a steep hill. And I was walking annoyingly slow, you know, <laughs> like I was doing it on purpose. I just, like I said, you know, sometimes you just walk uphill, don't even make any effort. And, and uh, 
so we walked him up there and we looked at the mist or the mist came on us and it's kind of a neat thing. I always bring the kids up there, but this was the adults. So then I said, well, let's go. I said, see that rock across Canyon it was elephant rock. I said, well, let's go up there. And they're like, up there? I go, yeah, you can drive around. We'll just walk out to it. So then we drove up there. We walked out to Elephant Rock and the, the summit of it. And you could look back at that waterfall that we were standing there. And it looks like it's an inch tall from where you're standing, right? It's like <laughs> tiny. And they're like, wow. And then they're having lunch and kind of rest. And then we were sitting in the shade of this tree and and one lady said, you know, when you were walking up that hill to that waterfall, I thought to myself, can't he walk any faster? And, and uh, But now I, I see that maybe what you were doing was to slow us down. And I just want you to know, I haven't felt this peaceful and relaxed in a long time. Oh, man. So I was like, there it is. Hmm. It was so simple. But I didn't even, I was just kind of playing with it that day. Hmm. But now I'm raising, due to all of our stresses and our lockdown and all that we're been uh, subjected to and to go into nature and just sit quietly mm. is worth its weight in gold for the human being to have time to let stuff go off of you and see what comes to you mm. because there's a communication the communing that we have the ability with our senses to hear things to smell things taste things see things they're gifts for a purpose for us to to make a connection to life you know and the gift of life so really to me the the nature is is one of the only places or the the best place to get that kind of like go to the doctor the nature doctor to give you a tune-up <laughs> and allow you to calm down and keep doing that practice so that's where like i said the barefoot for me is trying to understand what it means to slow down and feel and and just look at the beauty and at the same time it, they talk about nature therapy and all this stuff it's like known to be healthy for you hmm. you know so that's that's what I'm excited to keep trying to work with. And then to go climbing like that. I love to climb when it's, you know, and that's back to our days. We weren't, we were trying hard, but we weren't way overextending ourselves. I don't think if you get my drift, because starting out with hexes and stoppers, you weren't going to fall much. I mean, we had Swami belts, so we were staying well within our ability. I was, the other day I pulled up to Reed's Pinnacle Park uh, climbing area and there was two young guys there and they were looking up the cliff in a funny way, like they were intimidated almost or something. And I, I said, hey, you guys going to go up there? <laughs> and they go, no, no, we're just looking, you know. <laughs> but, you know, it's maybe over our heads. It's like, oh, that's good to look and think about what you're doing and, and don't get too strung out, you know. Climb below your, your limit and your level, you know, and then work from there so that you always got that reserve if you need it, hmm. you know. So we climbed like that for a long time. I mean, like say, a swami belt and hexes and stoppers. You, you really don't want to fall. And, and you're going to probably get that stopper in and just say, lower me, you know. So there's a whole different aspect of like your connection to that, you know. So I had to laugh. That was a cool thing with those kids. But it, it made me reflect on that, you know. Mm. Well, Ron, there's... Uh... I got a number of questions for you and, and for people listening. I don't think we're going to get to them in this conversation. I think Ron and I are going to save it for another conversation and just do a listener Q&A as a separate thing. But do you have a few more minutes? There, There is one more thing that I think would be really fun to get into. Yeah. Yeah. That one cup of coffee almost wore off. But yeah. <laughs> well, we can take a quick break if you need another one. No, no, I'm good. Bro. I'm <laughs> okay. Well, um, we skipped over, not skipped over, but you mentioned something uh, taking me on this journey from Astroman all the way to Magic Line. You mentioned Alan Watts and To Bolter Not To Be and a little yeah. bit of your time at Smith Rock. And I reached out to Alan before this conversation 
I asked him uh, if he had any fun questions for you, any funny stories or anything. And he didn't really know what to, there was too much there, you know, he had a hard time just consolidating it. So he sent me this long email and it was just incredible. And I actually, I think I want to read the whole thing here. And then he did have a couple questions, but I think I need to take a a minute to read a couple paragraphs and, and help set up the questions. Oh, I appreciate that. And I appreciate the way you said that. There's just so much to all this, (laughs) you know, and, and, and that's the humbling part of sharing to the best of my ability or, you know, and just help, hopefully something comes across to us to feel our, our uh, inspiration and shared connection through climbing. But yeah, <laughs> please do. So yeah, listeners, bear with me. This is pretty long, but I, I think it's going to be really interesting. So this is, I don't think Alan intended me to just read this whole email, but, <laughs> but I'm going to. So this is from Alan. He wrote, I first heard about Ron from Chris Jones while Bill and I were roommates in our freshman year at U of O. Chris told stories of watching him do midnight lightning, and it forever changed our view of what was possible. So from the very start, the three of us were chasing the legend of Ron Kauk, trying to catch up with his level. It was midnight lightning, more than the longer routes he did, that really captured our imagination. A few years later, as Smith sport climbing began to take hold, the legend of Kauk, along with John Backer, seemed like an opposing force. We assumed that Backer and Kauk formed a unified front against the new style of climbing. Backer was very outspoken and set in his ways. Nothing was going to change his view of the world. Kauk was totally different, tremendously personable and confident without the dogmatic attitude towards new ways of looking at climbing. The first time I ever got to really have a long conversation with Kalk was in December of 1986 in Denver at the annual AAC meeting. The Great Debate teamed the old school climbers against the new generation. Kalk, along with John Backer, Lynn Hill, Henry Barber, were in the traditional camp. The debate itself was kind of awkward and scripted as each of us gave a three-minute talk and answered a couple of questions, but there was no actual debate because emotions ran so high that there was concern that a fight might break out. But later that evening, Pat Ament organized an informal gathering in Backer's hotel room upstairs. For a couple of hours, Pat mediated a discussion between Christian Griffith, Ron, John, and me. He recorded the conversation and wrote an article for his short-lived magazine called A Climber's Art. I still have a copy. We all got along surprisingly well. Backer was respectful, but rigid in his beliefs, and he refused to be swayed. But Ron was open. Christian and my argument, as much as anything else, was that sport climbing provided a tremendous tool for us to improve as climbers and do harder routes. Backer did not feel that the ends of getting better and doing harder routes justified the means of hangdogging and rap bolting. The conversation with Ron was the first time I realized that there never was a unified front against sport climbing among traditional climbers. Kauk showed up at Smith a few months later. So did Lynn Hill. Their minds were wide open, and their visit opened the floodgates for sport climbing in the U.S. Smith Rock didn't open their minds. Their minds were never closed to begin with. I was wrong when I assumed that they were an opposing force. They were immediately allies, and they took the sport places far beyond where I ever had gone. Climbers like Todd Skinner, Christian Griffith, and myself certainly deserve credit for getting the sport climbing ball rolling in the U.S., but when Kauk came on board, everything changed quickly. Ron will always be remembered for his remarkable ascents in Yosemite, but he deserves credit for creating the momentum that led to the sport climbing explosion that occurred in the United States. 
Wow, that's so beautiful to hear. <laughs> and, and that's the heart that Alan carries for all his commitment and his story that's so beautiful at Smith Rocks. And, and Smith Rocks is truly a beautiful place with the smell of juniper and the river that winds through it, you know, and, and how it just ignites the, the human spirit to, to explore and imagine what we can do to express ourselves, you know. And uh, I just love all that because everything I've been trying to say really does come from the heart and the, the love for rock climbing and being in nature and, it all, and being with a community that we care about each other. And, and it's going to get tough sometimes like that, but we, we went through it and, and we can see all the great things that have happened hmm. with rock climbing and the people that have come along. And so there it is. It's all about our story, our collective experiences. And, and to hear what he was saying and know that Alan and I have that connection is why I got on the phone with you. Because when I, hmm. I, I was leery about these things, you know, because not that I'm worried about being vulnerable, but it's, I'm always trying to make sense, you know, and in, in a modern world, it's not always easy to make sense necessarily. <laughs> but what, what I loved, what Alan just opened himself up and shared and the way he talked about Adam Andre or whatever it was and his, you know, his humble approach and, and how we all get inspired and, and you know, and, and but we, he respected Alan and Alan respects me and I respect Alan and Wolfgang and I and uh, Alan were at Smith Rock. So these are life memories that run so deep in the beauty and value of rock climbing as a way to have community, have connection, educate ourselves, uh, to further advance ourselves and to sophisticate our story. So here we are on an incredible opportunity, you know, with yourself, Steve, to put this together and, and see what we can come up with. And hopefully we all walk away feeling a little bit better, hmm. feeling a little bit more inspired and knowing that there's endless amount of potential in us as human beings to be creatively engaged and make First and foremost, your world better off for you and the world better off for others. Mm. It doesn't mean it's always going to be easy because I think that's what it means about being rock climber isn't that easy mm. <laughs> in some ways, you know. Yeah, I mean, so much of our pursuit in rock climbing is choosing, choosing the harder path. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so much reward in it, you know, and, and, and then that reward can be to have all those experiences and then eventually stand out barefoot in the backyard and just <laughs> feel all those experiences. That's why I joke... That for me, for years, it's like the questions I would get is, when is the last time you did that? And what's your age now? Or whatever, you know. <laughs> and, and so with the Midnight Lightning, I'd say, oh, I did it last week. Really? I go, yeah, I was out bouldering in Camp 4. And, and they're like, huh? I go, yeah. I was, when I go bouldering, it's like I'm doing Midnight Lightning. Because mm. the stoke of it, the, the connection, the, the beauty of just moving on rock, you know, I just tease around a little bit. But... I did have a day like that not so long ago, just bordered on some, you know, fun, moderate stuff for me. Because I honestly, I never really liked to try that hard, you know, joking way. Like Michael, Michael Jordan once said, I like to let my game come to me. And you're like, are you kidding? He's so aggressive out there. But I, I kind of understood what he meant. Like there was just a flow we were in and it, it, it we were trying, but it, it just was natural, you know, in a lot of ways. So to be back in camp and I was bouldering, going up this little edge of red boulder. And, and when you get to the top of it, you can look up and see Sentinel, you know, maybe the last light on it. And it's just the stoke, right? It's all about that stoke. So you might climb that boulder, you might climb Midnight Lightning or whatever dominator, the hardest ones, but it's about your feeling and your experience and, and the joy of, of doing that and, and whatever is to yourself, you know? Hmm. So that that's, I love that part, you know, that's why to this day, climbing is just part of my life 
and I love to do it. And I love the feeling of the rock. I like, like being on some of the same routes for, for all these years and learn something a little bit more about them, about myself. And it's like, it's kind of when they say that beginner's mind, because I, I joke around saying I'm a beginner climber now. <laughs> I just go out there and enjoy being on the rock so much that it didn't really matter to me how difficult it was or, or you know, would it be, could I brag about it? <laughs> you know, no, I just, just like, like I was doing that route, Lunatic Friends the other day at the Reeds, you know, one I did the first time in 73 and Barry Bates did it in 1971, but it's the most aesthetic, beautiful crack and, and how you can feel moving up it is just what it's all about. And, and Magic Line taught me that too. Hmm. It's just how you feel and how you can move up it, you know? Even if, and, and Patrick Edlanger, one of the greatest climbers ever, when he was giving me a ride to a competition in Paris, he told me, you know, if you just make one move, make it the best move you ever made. Mm. And I was like, man, I'll remember that. <laughs> you know? I want to ask a couple of questions from Alan. Uh, the first one is, was there ever a moment that Ron's mind was changed about traditional climbing versus sport climbing? What led to his willingness to be the first Yosemite legend to be open to tactics that so many of his peers rejected? You know, okay, this is a great question. No, I was never closed-minded to it exactly. You know, in the 70s, in a way, Bridwell put it out there that the first rule is there are no rules. And, and that's a joke with the kind of rebellious 70s attitude, but he was already repelled Bolton on the Nabisco wall at the cookie the week then. So... <laughs> My philosophy, basically, if I had, I don't know if it's philosophy, but common sense will prevail. The only thing that I couldn't understand is hanging on the rope. I couldn't get that part yet, right? Because mm. I hadn't gone out to where you needed to do that necessarily, and I hadn't met the people that I was like inspired enough firsthand to talk to them about it. That's why Alan's story is so appreciated to add into this because they had that debate and there was things happening and he's absolutely correct. I was thrown in with Backer, his whole uh, thing about rap bolting and all that kind of stuff. But I didn't necessarily agree. It's just that somehow we climbed a lot. We we were put in the same boat. So he hit it on the, that nail on the head that it wasn't true. He's exactly right. So I was open-minded, but it became a thing that surfaced in the media of climbing that there was this war against this stuff, you know? Mm. So it, it went the way it went because of the, almost the legacy of Yosemite with Bolting and Royal Robbins and Warren Harding. And we've seen all those stories in the movies and so forth. But it, it I think probably it, I can't exactly remember, but um, going to Europe was awesome to see limestone cliffs, to see the obvious thing, like you're going to lead those from the ground up. <laughs> you know, like how would you possibly mm. do that? You wouldn't, you couldn't. So they were setting up climbs for us to experience through their efforts to put bolts in to work it out and we can come enjoy it. And however that worked at that point, I, the shift was taking place major league when I got to go to Europe for my first time. Mm. And I showed up there at a competition with a swami belt. Can you imagine? <laughs> I swear to God, they were concerned about me. And I'm looking at all these guys with these bright neon petzl harness. I'm like, check these guys out with their bright, you know, but I look like some kind of cowboy that's got like, was off the trail somewhere in, from the past, you know? And, uh, so, so that, I came back with a fluorescent harness and a whole new level of inspiration and meeting incredible Antoine Le Minestrel, DD Rabbit, DDA Rabbit 2. I mean, I was meeting all kinds of cool characters, you know, 
and it just felt like a, a, a re another inspiration of the camp four beginning for me, you know? Mm. And so that would had to do with community and communication, you know, or like I was saying before, commune with the rock, communicate in a community. So if you could do one of those limestone roots that were the bolts in for it made sense. And then coming back around absolutely with Jerry Moffat at Smith rocks, the spell was broken because I remember doing a root called taco chip at uh, <laughs> one of my first roots I hung on and I did it, you know, and wow. but, like, can you imagine having the opportunity to work out moves on a route when you've never done that? It just, it like, it was almost like being pulled back in a slingshot and let go. Like, <laughs> like for me to have that opportunity, yeah. like I got to go into all new territory of hard roots, you know? And so it was, awesome but i remember i felt guilt i was i was kind of feeling guilty slightly i'm like i don't know did i you know did i really do that mm, mm. <laughs> and then i'd say to bolt or not to be that experience with moffat you know when i'm up there working he would yell at me let go let go stop <laughs> hanging on you've got to work the roots more precise than mm. and, and then i got to do that and i think alan might have been there that day they were walking down the trail you know and i was just moving up the wall moving up the wall and, and i remember my tip split like after the most of the crux, but there's like a, I don't know what it is at the top, maybe still 13A or something. And I could look down on the edges below, there'd be a little patch, of a uh, little spot of blood. Down. And I'd look at my tip and i go, it's freaking split. I, this is my last chance. Wow. You know? yeah. There's no way if I'll be gone. And I did it. You know, so it's those moments that we share in a community that's richly connected to with someone like Alan Watts and his, I will use the word spiritual connection to Smith Rocks, you know, Hmm. And then, and my connection to Yosemite, and we're blending it in the art of rock climbing and, and humbling ourselves not to get too lost in all the, the uh, ethical, ethical debates. They're important, but we can't get lost in them because we're humble human beings and we have to protect ourselves. Hmm. So it was obviously to protect yourself with bolts. And it became obvious that you think I wanted to go to the ground every time and start to bolt or not to be, not, not really, you know. <laughs> but, so, so common sense prevailed. Uh, people like Alan and all the other around the world, you know, just promoted this stuff. And, and I feel so honored and, and it just warms my heart to, that someone understood who I was hmm. and, and what maybe I could help contribute, you know, is a big deal to me. And, and that comes back to giving thanks to Alpine Club for that, you know, Lifetime Achievement Award. You know, it's, it's deep, bro. It's deep. <laughs> You've certainly earned it. I want to ask the second question from Alan, and, and he was just curious if you faced any backlash uh, in Yosemite when you did some of those early non-traditional routes, or, you know, did your status in Yosemite make you exempt from criticism? He was curious about the backlash. You know, it, it does what that kind of stuff does perfectly. It divides people into camps a little bit, right? Mm. So there wasn't, well, you know, one of the people that wrote bad about me was Royal Robbins, you know? Because he talked about Mark Chapman and I, and, and there, there's that whole other story, probably in those other questions, we can get into that story, but went back in a little rivalry camp parking lot stuff. But um, <laughs> Royal Robbins himself kind of recognized us as dirt bikers in the woods or something, like like no respect. And, and so I remember at one point, Royal reached out to shake my hand after he wrote that. I didn't even shake his hand. So there was this, there's this thing. But then it, it changed all around. Like Royal and I did meet up and we did talk. And, uh, and he understood me and I understood him and, and he'd already been through that, right? So it was part mm. of the history. So there was, there was a, a mini backlash for a moment with Royal, but yet 
his beautiful story about how he humbled himself and maybe thought it was ego, his ego about with Don, uh, Harding's bolts and all that. I think there was a, a little blip of that for us that we experienced, but overall, it wasn't too bad. I could say, you know, not not necessarily too bad. Hmm. It was a little awkward when uh, Backer had some of his guys go beat over crossroads, the lower part of that. They'd beat over the bolts. Oh yeah. You know, but, so there was that kind of backlash, and that was so beyond my comprehension. Once you start getting like vandalizing, and you know, you're like, seriously, that's what we're doing now. Mm. No. So that kind of showed you uh, when people are trying to force their own will on others as a dictatorship. That's probably when everything's gonna. That's when the real shifts are meant to happen, because it's not the way it's supposed to be. Because our seventies and sixties. I mean, people had we had our ethics, but we always govern ourselves in a good way. And, and yet, if you look at the 70s, it was a, a freedom to express yourself. And you're, if you earn that right, like you're going to tell Tommy Caldwell you can't do the freaking Don Wall? No, <laughs> you won't do it because he earned his right to be there. Mm. He is, has every discipline in, in the realm of rock climbing and mountaineering, whatever that you can have. So you will respect him as an artist, mm. you know? So in our uh, uh, connection with Yosemite, we... We had the right to do, and, and that's when I did Crossroads. I was like, oh, this route, this just showed what's coming. Crossroads was an example of a route that looks kind of impossible because it's so blank, but yet there was holds there. And I thought, oh, there's so much more climbing to come in Yosemite. Mm. And, you know, so, but to answer the question, not, not extreme, but enough that it was kind of, you know, a bit of a pain. <laughs> Well, okay, Ron, there's there's one last thing I want to ask you about, and I've kind of been saving it for last, or maybe it's just, you know, the way the conversation went, but uh, bear with me one second. I'm actually going to send you a photo to your cell phone. I'm sending it right now. And let me know when you see it. I know what it's going to be already. <laughs> Swear to God, man! Oh no, that one. Okay, that's not too bad. <laughs> that is freaking priceless. Can you uh, can you describe the photograph I just sent you? <laughs> well, that photograph describes the whole god darn talk. <laughs> you know, you got Alan, Wolfgang, and myself standing there together at Smith Rock. There is a story behind why we were there would do something for television, sports world or something like we're going to make a new climb. Alan talked about it briefly in his talk <laughs> with you. And, um, and so they were taking our pictures. And, and as he remembers it, I said, we should just hold hands. <laughs> <laughs> and God only knows what the heck that's supposed to mean. I think because everyone's got a funny smile or a funny look on our face. But I think that picture... I don't even know, but you just sprung that on me. And both Alan and I have our Nike tank tops on and uh, Wolfgang smiling in his humble way. And I got my Oakley sunglasses, you know, on top of the, like, we're all just in it. And you see nothing but camaraderie. You see nothing but sincerity. And I think the genuine love for for what climbing means to us mm. as a way of life, as as developing us as individual characters, but connected. Like that's that picture's worth a thousand words, like they say. <laughs> and I love the rugged terrain of of uh, Smith Rocks in the background because <laughs> when you do catch a sense of place, and Smith Rocks is so special, you can almost smell the environment through this picture. That that, hmm. like I said, those juniper. I, I'd love going there and walking around just looking for a good line and 
<laughs> but that that's uh that's too funny. <laughs> so for people listening, they're probably rolling their eyes or they're just so curious, but I'll be sure to share this photo in the show notes and I'll share it on Instagram too. But I do have a couple paragraphs from Alan that I'll read that kind of summarize the photo. And I, I wanted to give you, I wanted to hear what your reaction was, but I'll go ahead and read this, uh, these couple paragraphs from Alan. He wrote, I was lucky enough to spend five days climbing with Kauk at Smith Rock in 1989. It was a totally contrived situation with the arrival of a film crew to document the ascent of a hard new route at Smith for NBC. But it was amazing to be a part of it. Finding myself teamed with Kauk and Wolfgang Gulick was one of the most memorable moments in my life when I felt like I had arrived at a place where I never imagined possible, teaming with heroes of mine. I would never have been in that situation if they hadn't lived their lives. Whatever happened at Smith Rock during the 1980s was inspired by these two men, along with a handful of others. They were the role models I strive to emulate. I've included a photo that my dad took of the three of us standing at the base of Monkey Face. We were asked by a photographer to pose for a shot, and my dad just happened to be on the scene. I remember we were standing there awkwardly and Kalk just suddenly said, we should hold hands just before the shot was taken. Wolfgang and I are both laughing as we stand there with our hands clasped with Ron playing the straight man. Every moment with Ron was entertaining. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, that's cool. That was really awesome though. And uh, that backbone route, you know, doing that. And yeah. You know, like Alan said, it was an awkward situation, and it, it would kind of epitomize this, the, the challenge we were all in to do things for that thousand dollars again, <laughs> and, and but yet it still brought us all together, and, and uh, yeah. So again, yeah, it's 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 quite a thing to put words on on so many feelings and experiences, mm -hmm. and I hope we we got enough that came through us today, Steve. To the listeners will feel something for themselves, their own connections to the the rock and how to further their raise their levels in all aspects of themselves. And, and the way Alan talks about this, we've all felt the same thing. It was me climbing with Bridwell or looking up to Chris Vanderbilt. It was on the cover of Mount magazine as a kid or Tom Frost on the uh, basic rock craft cover. You know, this lineage of inspiration is what does connect us. And we want this to keep flowing into us because we, we really are all connected, you know, mm -hmm. I think that's part of the future of rock climbing is to allow that that aspect of the experience to come into us and, and not miss the opportunity that's really there to go a little deeper into yourself, be a little more aware of the nature around you, be a little more aware of our behavior, kind gestures, you know, always supporting and, and loosen our grip on the fear of failure or being too competitive or all that because really we're just gaining an experience and, and the experience is what it's all about hmm. in the end it's your experience so we want to make the best of that and then then you will truly be rich you know because hmm. yeah it's something you we carry with us for that, that so that photo i'm still looking at it and it's still soaking <laughs> into me you know and it, it carries a lot of emotion because wolfgang's not here you know hmm. And and he left his own powerful, positive influence on everything. And and he was one of the guys that later uh, said he saw the picture of Separate Reality in the cover of Mount Magazine. And, and he would turn it round and round, not sure how to look at it. Because <laughs> 20, you know what I mean? So I thought, and then that sh just pushed them over there, you know, so we shared this kind of psyche. And then he took it a whole nother level, you know, with Action Direct or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really an incredible... Uh, connection we all have.
Well, Ron, I think that's an incredible uh, message to leave people with. Unless there's anything else that we haven't talked about that you feel like you want to share or get or get into. Well, at this point, not really. But you know, if we do something later with the questions answers, maybe we can, as you go back through this, and and we might be able to polish up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, main thing is, you know, we just feel good, and uh, like we say, give thanks to everything we do have, not what we don't. Mm. And just keep working together, you know, work together and everyone has a little something to offer. So that's why, you know, even standing barefoot out there, you know, make a little offering to the earth with your be thankful. You know, there's something that that helps us get rid of things we don't need, you know, when we put our priorities straight. Because these days we're running into a lot of stress, you know. So we want to kind of de-stress ourselves and and like say, stay into the nature as much as you can. And uh, I don't know, that's about it, really, you know. Well, this has been incredible. So many fun stories, so many great insights in there. This will definitely be a conversation that I return to again and again. And and thank you so much. It's been really fun to connect with you over these past uh, few weeks. Quite a few, yeah. quite a few conversations that meant a lot to me. It's been really fun to, to get to know you, and I, I feel, I feel like it's really a true honor to be able to chat with you and and help share some of these stories with with everyone else. And congratulations again on a lifetime achievement award that's been well earned. And uh, yeah, I just really appreciate everything you had to say. Uh, thank you. And it, like I said, it was a little bit of a road for us to get to this point. We've had our conversations and uh, it's nice to get to know you and, and that you're doing your part, you know, to help us express ourselves and bring something into our climate community. And so really appreciate uh, your end on this to to allow my voice to come through the best I could put it out there and and uh, sincerely give thanks to you and everyone that listened. Hmm. That we can all just feel a little bit better about whatever it is we want to feel better about. All right. All right, brother. Again, for people listening, I think Ron and I are going to touch base and set up another call pretty soon to answer a bunch of your questions. I got a lot of really great questions and uh, too many, I, I felt, to to try to fill into this conversation. So we're going to do that in a separate conversation. Look out for that. And I'll add everything, including that great photo in the show notes as usual and uh, and on Instagram. And yeah, Ron, thank you again. All right. Really appreciate Everyone, your time. <laughs> Thanks. Right, we'll, we'll see you. Okay, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye.
flowers, you can freak out. the preliminaries yeah just that's what people want you know it's like tabloid <laughs> yeah totally <sighs> god i can't even breathe that one just makes me want to laugh hard. I mean, it's in, a, in a funny way it's just so comical fresh on the nugget climbing podcast yeah you're not gonna believe this the truth finally surfaces 